Hello and welcome to episode 232 of The Crate and Crowbar. It is the 30th of March 2018. My name is Chris Thurston and tonight I'm joined by Philippa War. Hello. And returning Tom Francis. Hello. Welcome back, Tom. Thanks. You have been at GDC. I have. You have. Um, yep. Do you want to know how it was? <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah. I hope that would be implicit, but go, go, go right ahead. Just, just don't let anything stop you. Do you want to be that guy who just suddenly launches into how, what his holiday was like and everyone's like, oh, Jesus. Well, in this particular case, uh, you know, you could talk about how Bali was as well, well if you like. Uh, for tax reasons, it was not a holiday. Right. <laughs> how was your work trip? How was <laughs> work it? Hang on, was... let's talk about Bali. I want to talk about Bali. How was that? Okay, that was also a work trip, <laughs> just for the record. But uh, you were, yeah, you it were It was a game jam. The, yeah. Yeah, organised by Free Lives, who are the guys who do Broforce. Um and they they also did this last year where they just go to an island for a month and and jam on games you know make mm. short uh prototypes and just jamming on those games yeah so last year it was mauritius this year it was bali and uh it was awesome we, i went swimming with manta rays and turtles um, for work and got extremely sunburned <laughs> yeah that was research <laughs> it was inspiration for the wizards game Maybe a wizard would be a manta ray. are enormous, though. <laughs> like, that's amazing. Look, th- it was, really was on weekends. <laughs> so, <laughs> it was a work trip in which the work days were spent actually prototyping things and, um. I feel like we've started on a very defensive. <laughs> yeah. I'm not on trial. <laughs> <laughs> Don't have to justify yourself to you. So, and without wishing this to be another cause for you becoming defensive and feeling like <laughs> oh, this is an interrogation, what does the island add to the experience? Like, what's the, is, is the island stuff a, a purposeful thing that they are doing with the jam? Or it's is a refreshing it... change of scene that inspires you to. It's a holiday. Make a new work <laughs> tax holiday. Yeah. And after that, GDC, which is definitely yeah. also a work trip. Yeah. Um, I didn't see any talks or play any games, <laughs> but it was nevertheless a work trip. I gave a talk. I saw that one. Is that available online? In yeah. a sense. Um, no. Okay. Uh, but it might be in a few weeks. They tend to upload them afterwards and then they stay in the GDC vault. Some come out to, mm. oh, yeah. to, for various reasons. I think I need but... to tell them that I would like mine to be public because you can just ask for that. Right. Yeah. Otherwise, um, it's if you went to GDC, you can actually just put in your um, credentials and and watch stuff. From yeah, the vault. I'm going to be doing that because I missed everything. <laughs> the problem is that each time I go to GDC, I make between five and ten friends, <laughs> and I've been going for six years now, <laughs> and I had about twenty friends when I started. So now I've got like a hundred friends, and uh, like, oh, seeing them quick. all just is very difficult to fit in. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I think that's probably true. Like extrapolate that across the entire games industry and that kind of explains what GDC is. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, someone described it as social crunch. It's <laughs> a good way of putting it. Oh, wow. Um, and also checking in on the sea lions. Yeah. Sea oh, lions, I didn't do that. They? But I'd just seen manta rays, so... <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> It'd be like a step down from that. You're so blasé now about sea lions. Can't be seen associated with sea lions at this point. <laughs> um, uh, well... What game did you cover? Were you working on Wizards? Yes. Um, ah, cool. Uh, yep. Um, and uh, I figured out some stuff about like how grid should work in that, and I managed to get like a couple of interactions feeling good. Um, John did some great animations. Well, uh, just like keyframe poses that uh, that are good enough to 
have a man punch another man in the face and that's when the magic starts to happen i feel <laughs> that's the real wizard magic <laughs> yeah in a sense i'm worried about what the magic in our your... fists all along <laughs> yeah well i'm worried about what happened on your swimming with manta rays given that you said that was research <laughs> <laughs> manta ray got real close so i felt defensive <laughs> Made a really good noise. And that's why Tom can't go to the San Francisco Aquarium. Not won't. <laughs> Sir, you have to leave. Exactly. You can't fight all of them. Some of my new friends at Freelives pointed out that the interactions I've prototyped so far in the Wizards game was somebody punching someone in, a f- in the face and another person firing a rocket launcher at someone, <laughs> neither of which are entirely wizard-based interactions. Uh, but they do cover this full span of human conflict. Yeah. It was an interesting point, and I chose to ignore it. <laughs> Good. Did you say earlier before we were recording the podcast that you did have some DDC news to to draw out of the show? Or am um, I making that up? Only in the sense that I was at the IGFs. And oh, so of course, that was talk the about thing. Yeah, that's what about the IGF. How was uh, the IGF? How was the yeah, it was amazing. I haven't been in six years, and it got a lot bigger in that time. <laughs> and I was also very late to it, um, uh, because I forgot I needed my pass. Um and so when I came in, it had already started and I had to walk to my table. Um, and that involved walking past sort of what seemed like 2000 people. <laughs> it took a significant amount of time just to traverse the space to get to my table. And it's massive. The are up front and it's basically like an aircraft hangar like space yeah. at the bottom of the Moscone Center. And plebs like me have to sit on <laughs> folding chairs and watch as people like you bumble in saw, late and wander to tables. <laughs> I saw your colleague Evan Larty at one of the VIP tables, actually. So oh. some PC game people get to... Yeah, that. I wasn't there. I didn't get to go because we have people in San Francisco, which is apparently more expedient than sending me. Um, yeah, I was uh, at those tables... Um, uh, because Heat Signature was a finalist, and that was fun. Uh, we're a finalist with Grand Prize, which I knew we could not possibly win, because also nominated for the Grand Prize were Into the Breach, Night in the Woods, Getting Over It with Bennett Foddy, Barbara Is You, and West Loathing. Right, yeah. Um, which is a pretty tough <laughs> crowd. Um, and, but I thought, like, we definitely wouldn't win because either Barbara Is You or uh, into the breach would win, mm. and that did not happen. No, in fact, it was Nitwa. Nitwa won it. <laughs> Nitwa mm. won it. Uh, yeah, Night in the Woods won. Night in the Woods did really well. Yeah, it was a surprising set of results because then in the, or earlier in the visual art category, I thought for sure Night in the Woods or Cuphead, for fuck's sake, would win. Yeah. That's the, is that the subtitle? <laughs> <laughs> in the visual art category, yes, it's called Cuphead, for fuck's sake. Uh, neither of those won. Um, Chuchel one, mm. which is the new yeah. game from the Amanita guys. Um, it's so cute. Yeah, about a fuzzy black soot blob on a white background. It's basically a dust buddy who yeah. wants a cherry really badly. <laughs> Couldn't and imagine why you'd like that pip. <laughs> And then the Nuovo category was also surprising because it went to uh, getting over it with Bennett Foddy. Which is a game that is based on another game. <laughs> it's based on a game so. called Sexy it's a Hiking. Game about taking another game and explaining why it's good mm. like it is an act that's what's kind of interesting about it. i suppose maybe you could argue the- that it's innovative in that it's, it's a game as an act of criticism of a whole idea and mm. games themselves in some ways so that is new 
But yeah, yeah, I do it, really like that. that I think, yeah, I, I think that's a good. In some sense, if I just release someone else's game as my own, wouldn't that be the newest thing of all? <laughs> Should buy no, that order. happens on the App Store all the time. <laughs> <laughs> buy Tom Francis's Flappy Bird. Yeah. <laughs> One of the many Flappy Bird clones. <laughs> Beach like a promising route. <laughs> <laughs> signature that's better shit <laughs> <laughs> that's right um yeah should we go through the other results see if there's any yeah any any uh the excellence in audio went to ernog unlimited which i'm not familiar with yeah that is by niflas, niflas. yeah who i think did niflas make a game called niflas <laughs> if not what was his game called because i can't remember um but that he's uh, the creator of you know one of the seminal uh indie classics and Ernog I did not hear much about at all when it came out um and so it's kind of cool to see it getting some recognition mm. although I haven't played it so I can't actually say whether it is uh deserved but yeah. I assume so both excellence in design and best student game went to Baba is you mm. Mm. that uh, that game looks amazing I have not yet played it but the concept is that some of the rules of the game are written into the the level and it's a block pushing game mm-hmm. and so you can push those words around so that they no longer say what they used to say so one of the rules is baba is you which means you control the thing that is called baba and if you push the word rock in front of that it just says rock is you and now you control the rock yeah it's, <laughs> it's nuts it sounds great and you can there's words like um lava is hot and baba is melt and those two rules combined mean if you touch lava you'll melt and die but you could change either one of those either you can make lava is not hot or um uh, you could change it so Baba no longer melts. You could even make lava is melt. I don't know what happens if you do that. <laughs> this is the lava just melt, presumably. Uh, it would melt if it got hot. So if the hot rule is also in place, I think yes, it would right. melt itself. <laughs> so yeah, then. melt means hot. Melt means when you go when you get hot, you die. Right. Oh, that's so cool. That's nuts. Uh, and you could do stuff like wall is you, and now every wall on the level moves when you move through the cursor keys. <laughs> oh, right, so you could move yourself through a maze just by moving the maze. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Man. Clever. The audience award went to Celeste, mm. which I can see that. I can see someone like Celeste doing well. Was that voted? Yeah, I guess mark? so. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you can tell I did not uh, motivate my community to vote for that, <laughs> so I did not know that was a thing. <laughs> Oh, it sounds familiar now that you mention it, that there is an audience award. <laughs> for goodness sake. Uh, the Gaming for Everyone Award went to Special Effect. That's the company that makes uh, sort of accessibility devices to help people play games that have motive difficulties and so on. And I think it would be all, all forms of disability. Mm. So that's that's deserving. And yeah, the video for that was, was really touching. Yeah, I remember speaking to them like five, six, seven years ago now, a, a Eurogamer event and being very kind of taken aback with what they were doing so yeah it's really cool good for them and then finally the last one we haven't discussed is uh the alt control dc award which went to puppet pandemonium yeah i don't quite know what that is i saw it (laughs) i couldn't tell how it worked there was definitely a physical puppet theater there (laughs) and some people playing a game i'm not sure how the two connected to each other that's the thing I missed the most was all control GDC. Yeah. Like, I, cause the talks and stuff I could, you know, get from the vault or whatever. Yeah. But the actual sort of the act of playing things in an unusual way with people who are equally delighted by them <laughs> is just so cool and so much fun. Did you once play a game where you're in a coffin? Yes, but that was at uh, Rest. What was Tapophobia? Tapophobia. Okay. Um, So basically, you would be the person in the um, 
in the coffin and you would have like a VR device uh, on um, and there would be somebody outside uh, the thing moving around on, you know, on the, uh, on the PC sort of end of things trying to find you. And so you can mm. sort of like, yeah. you know, get cues. And I, I think it was like audio and stuff. You could like tell, you know, when someone was close or, you know, whatever, you've basically been buried alive yeah. and you're so trying to get them to you. That uh, was also in all control GDC this year. Oh, um, cool. Yeah. I, I saw that it involved a coffin and I thought, I don't think there are two games that involve getting in a, physically getting in a coffin, right? <laughs> so it's got to be that one. But I didn't know about huh. like the police angle. It's like a police officer trying to find someone who's been buried alive. Oh, is it? I, I can remember. I think maybe they developed when it I since. Played it, I think it was just some, uh, like a person, like a friend, maybe trying to find mm. you who had been buried alive. But I might also have missed. And they're moving around. It seemed like they're moving around on a sort of Google Maps type interface. Huh. Oh, okay. That's Maybe it is a different game. <laughs> yeah. Maybe there really are two games about one person's in a coffin and the other person's trying to find <laughs> oh. them. Although one thing that I remembered was that I think I had a very different experience because of being so small. Um, and the coffin, because it was at a, you know, a public games event, it had to be, you know, able to, to take people who were far bigger than me mm. right just because it had to sort of be able to fit a range of people inside and so i found it quite roomy <laughs> it was quite comfy i had a nice time <laughs> did you go to sleep uh no because i think i was trying to t to guide um david hayward to where i was at the time <laughs> so that i'm in the coffin rude but it was really comfy and it Don't was because <laughs> they put the lid on and it like instantly blocks out the noise of rest. Yeah. And huh. so that was, I found that really soothing. I was just like, leave me here. <laughs> <laughs> Don't tell anyone. <laughs> um, Robin Baumgarten had a game in Alt Control GC called, uh, Wobble Garden. Oh, uh, yeah. You know, he did Line Wobbler, which is a game that takes place on a one dimensional LED strip and you control it with a, what looks like a doorstop. <laughs> yeah, it is. It's, I think he said that he was inspired by God a video of games. a cat playing with a doorstop. Yeah, like one of those twangy ones. Twangy, springy things and you twang it and spring it to, to make your person go forwards or attack. It's really good yeah. as well. Um, and the thing is actually like, uh, extremely sensitive and the led strip is extremely high frame rate it sounds dumb but it's like 200 fps or something so it's like ridiculously smooth mm. uh, now he's done wobble garden which is like a field of those springy doorstops okay. uh, like a grid of them and uh you can twang any ones you want <laughs> um but I, I so i didn't get to play it but um i was surprised to sort of uh you know read the summary and stuff uh, that it's a sort of like garden and there's things living in it and you um i think you're cultivating them or sort of looking after them it's not so much a you know line wobbler you're killing enemies to progress it's very uh, conventional well, um, game also i think it's a very conventional game you... i just said the thing you play with a doorstop on that's one <laughs> no, but it's surprisingly int intricate because what you're trying to do is each level is the pathway from the the um nearest point of the led strip to the top of it um and so you are like one light along that, right? And I think you are trying to get 
past enemies or navigate like things that are coming at you and i can't remember either you had to stop moving when they were nearby you know like as in if you were moving they would get you or i think you had to like violently twang it to get rid yeah. of them maybe if you flick the, the doorstop then it, it vibrates yeah. you destroy things that are near you and so it was this kind of really intricate, well, not really intricate, but it was this surprisingly intricate, you mm. know, kind of like, okay, I want to go forward and then, you know, I need to twang this thing and then I go forward again. And, and it wasn't just repeatedly, you know, it wasn't just one level either. You'd, you know, you'd get to the end of a thing and then you'd be reset to the beginning of the strip, but it would be the next level. So it would be harder or it would mm. have like different enemy patterns or, you know, yeah. whatever else. That was really And when you cool. kill something, like the whole thing explodes in rainbow colors yes. it's surprisingly satisfying <laughs> a strip of lights but like a whole garden of them <laughs> and that, that was um cool. uh that was wrapped around a christmas tree at <laughs> uh i want to say either like london victoria or maybe even london paddington um at christmas like what oh, the sort of central decoration wasn't was it um uh king's cross like oh, king's yeah. cross st pancras right. it was the the one that's St. Pancras end of the thing, I think, yeah. maybe. Mm. So that's kind of cool. If you mm. went through that station at Christmas, you probably saw this game. That's so cool. Um, I also saw a some a dance horror game <laughs> that you yes. play by physically striking a zombie head. <laughs> and I think it's competitive as well. <laughs> I'm not sure in what sense it's horror. Um, it's meant to be the dance element. It's like rhythmic. <laughs> Yeah, I guess so. Oh, okay. I, I watched people play it. I didn't so much see what was happening on the screen. I just saw them like slapping the zombie heads <laughs> and the zombie heads vibrating in return. Good. I, I love all control GDC and I would also never make anything that would ever qualify for it because <laughs> it's so esoteric and it's so like just difficult to set up or ever get anyone to play, you know, in, in normal circumstances. I really loved, there was one that was like a laser zither. That would, so you would control a position on a screen by putting your fingers, um, to interrupt the lasers that made up the strings of oh, this yeah. zither. Um, and so, but to, to render them visible, it had to have like a little smoke machine that, you know, so you could see the green lasers that were shining and <laughs> that you were sort of interrupting. And that was really cool. It was just a sort of side scrolling thing, if memory serves. But yeah, that was really awesome. I wonder what became of Space Dog. Please don't. <laughs> the ultra control GDC game I played like a couple of years ago where you're in a spaceship and a dog is just fucking with the controls all the time. <laughs> you're trying to stop them. They're, like the all control aspect of it was you played it with a MIDI controller for some reason, but that had almost nothing to do with like what the game was. <laughs> right. Felt very much convertible to a, a, a form in which you could just play it on a normal keyboard. <laughs> it's an amazing idea for a game. Yeah. Like it's sort of almost reverse alien isolation where you're chasing. <laughs> There was a really good one, um, I think it was last year, maybe the year before, that I really liked because it was essentially a piece of facial recognition software, I think. And so one of you would be inside this, basically a cardboard box booth thing <laughs> with a, a thing that was constantly like scanning your face. But then the screen would tell you, the screen that you could see from inside there would say which emotion you were trying to express. <laughs> and so somebody looking in would be trying to guess which emotion you were trying to share with them. But you had to do that <laughs> without the uh, the recognition software picking up on that. So it was right. about like subverting oh, wow. huh, what cool. the, oh, wow. you know, like what all of this computer tracking 
thinking can do but that's really retain the ability to communicate as a human <laughs> with another human that's an can, incredible way of training an ai yeah i was gonna say can, <laughs> can the software learn because <laughs> every time the human gets it right it's like yes. oh so that is happiness that I is see. correct continue to fool me human. <laughs> oh no <laughs> you've made a fool of me <laughs> Who came out I'm of so the embarrassed. Box, <laughs> My robot emotions are so humiliated right now. <laughs> Please continue. I mean, don't. No, it's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, yeah, that's always my favourite part of it. So. <laughs> yeah, that's that's a that feels like a really interesting idea that could be applied to other things, like you know, image recognition. If you had to like draw something mm. that Google's deep thought or what's it called, the deep, deep dream, deep mind. A, a yeah, deep I think thing. it's deep <laughs> Yeah. Deep Google can't uh, can't recognise that it's a dog, but your friend can tell it's a dog. Yeah. Well, there's an interesting variation on that that isn't um, AI or isn't intelligent software driven, but it's a um, it's a board game where you sort of each have to. So I think I can't remember what it is. I think it's that everybody except one person knows the thing that they're supposed to be drawing. But you only get to make one line at a time on this piece of paper. <laughs> and then, like, someone, I guess, has to figure out who doesn't know the thing that they're drawing. Like, who That's a good idea. hasn't yeah. got the, the clue. So it's about, like, making these marks to sort of make it obvious that you kind of know, but without giving the person who doesn't know enough clues mm. that they can start joining in. That is... Uh, uh, it gives me sort of vicarious fear, because that is the... That is the nature by which my career has progressed. <laughs> yeah, it's imposter syndrome made yeah. <laughs> made visible. Definitely, it's this was what you were expecting, <laughs> as we all know. Yeah. Uh, as we all okay. know, except that one guy I don't like. <laughs> it's me in any conversation about Half Life at the start of my career. It was like, are you sure? <laughs> Speaking of. Uh, games events it's not a good segue but it's happening um i thought i would plug at the top of the show um our rest uh, mm. show which is coming up very very soon or like in two weeks which doesn't feel very far away at this point uh so we will be doing the crate and crowbar live once again on saturday at rest which i believe is the 14th of april at 4 30 don't exactly sure where yet i think it's a different room from last year uh but that is the end of the show so we will go to the pub afterwards It'll be me, Tom, Francis, and Graham. So that'll be fun. And people yeah. should should come along to that. You do need a, a ticket to the Saturday at Rest to attend. There's no ticket for our part of that, but you do need to obviously a ticket for the show. It is included. Yes. <laughs> in, yeah. In we are event. one of many things included, but obviously probably the most important. And then do we do questions live? We will do questions from questions live once again. Nice. Uh, yeah, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll warm certainly talk about what we've seen at the show and what cool things we've encountered. And then, yeah, you get to ask us, uh, questions without the comforting filter of email. <laughs> yeah, without our ability to <laughs> filter out your question for not being good enough. Yeah. No, I mean, and that goes both ways when we're not good enough to answer. That's, <laughs> yeah. That's, a, that's a profound and honestly the more common yeah. uh, manifestation of that. But yeah, so that'll be fun. Uh, that's, yeah. And then, as I say, uh, and probably most importantly, I believe there is knock on drinks after. So it'd be good to see some knock people there. Knock on drinks? Is that kick ons? That's what I meant. Kick ons. I meant yeah. kick on. I didn't mean knock on. I don't know. No, no, knock no, on it's expressions. Just, oh, okay. I think I, uh, there's yeah. a run on drinks where yeah, you just keep on drinking without any full stops. Yeah. <laughs> when you say where's kick ons, it's like, where are we going after? Yeah. Huh. 
I genuinely don't know if that's something that I have picked up from Alice and Pat Ash. I got that. <laughs> I got that from you. So. Yeah. <laughs> and I don't know whether they made it up to troll someone or whether it's real. <laughs> Let us know at. Uh, but yeah, so that's 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 the housekeeping news, I suppose. But it's nonetheless some form of news. Mm. Pip. Hello. What? Tom, you were about to say. Uh, I'm also speaking at Res. Oh, you are. Um, yeah, that's a reasonable thing to do. Interview. <laughs> I can't remember when. It's the day before, I believe. I believe it's the day after. Okay. Didn't you just say it was the end of Res? That no, was? we are on at the end of the Saturday. Oh, I see. I believe your talk time yes, is like noon Sunday. on Sunday. Yeah, that sounds right. <laughs> <laughs> I just got back. I'm not ready for the next thing yet. <laughs> uh, so yeah, if you are making a weekend of Res, then come to both things. And obviously go around the show and see other games and see other people's talks and, and stuff. But mostly those two things. And enjoy Adam while you have him. Yeah, Adam's going to be interviewing me... Um, about heat signature, which is great because it means I don't have to prepare. <laughs> Will he be at um, RPS long enough to write it up or is it just a chat? No, probably not. <laughs> Although, uh, to be honest, I'm going to ask some questions for him. Like, Where are you going? What? Who are you joining? <laughs> who can say? What was so bad about games journalism? <laughs> <laughs> You've only got a certain amount of time, Tom. <laughs> don't waste it. <laughs> Oof. Let's dodge that bullet and move on to what Pip's been playing. <laughs> Lol. Um, I have been playing Sunless Sea Skies. Skies. The, Sun- the up one. <laughs> Sunless Skies. <laughs> skies. The ocean of up. Or is it also known space? I'm going to hope that you edit this to Hi. sound like I knew the game name first up. <laughs> We're recording so late in the week, Pip, that nothing's getting edited. Interesting. Might break out the libel and test you on that. <laughs> anyway, um, yeah, I've been playing Sunless Skies. How's that? So it's actually, I have been enjoying myself because, um, so I booted it up months and months ago, like when it first came to the, the early access post Kickstarter thing, but there really wasn't much to do. And they've, they've said as much in the, um, in their post when they were talking about the, um, you know, the, the reduction in staff and the, the changes to the release schedule and things like that off the back of, um, what they hadn't anticipated in terms of the amount of money that would come in and when. Um, and so one of the things that they'd actually, I think, acknowledged was that there wasn't enough to do when they first put it in people's hands. Um, but now actually going, going back in, there was, uh, it, there are so many beautiful ports already to visit in your mm. little space train as you sort of go around this, um, Victoriana, uh, uh, industrialized, empire you're in a space train so yeah you know um in sunless seas you had sunless sea you had um the that boat Mm. basically with your crew and you'd potter between different ports and it was this top-down thing with you know loads of wonderful pros to explore um this is pretty much that but transplanted into space and so what you're doing is you're taking this um sort of steam space locomotive around <laughs> um on one plane of space existence yeah. um between different settlements that have sprung up out there because um basically queen victoria uh the traitor empress as she is known <laughs> in the game has decamped to space <laughs> to Are spread we, the do you have any sense of like the plane so it's 2d and we're looking <laughs> on, on like a flat plane yeah is the plane such that you could like go to earth on it 
Or is it like you're so looking down I'm on Earth? I'm not sure about that because basically what... Um, so currently, at the time of recording, although they are adding a new region um, on the 4th or the 5th of April, I think. Um, so currently it's only the Reach, I believe. Um, and so what the current setup that I've been experiencing is, is that it is very much space as divorced from earth you you know you can see um the the darkness and you can see stars and you can see like little dust clouds and and also other things um below or you know sort of outside the plane that you are on it's just that they are sort of slightly less distinct or there's like a layer of you know occluding fog or something so you can kind of get a better sense of the things that are just sort of there as as background to give that sense of depth um, beyond this one plane that you're allowed to move around on. Um, and also, um, to sort of help with you knowing if you're going to collide with the thing that is on your screen at any given point in time. I would say that's not perfect because I have avoided things that I was fine. It turned out to, to go over um and i have uh, also well and truly dinged the hull of my <laughs> space train by driving straight into something i thought might be on a different level of, right. <laughs> of yeah. the screen um the other thing is that with sunless sea they also introduced this idea of the the untersea uh or whatever it was you know that that mm. extra layer below so you could actually take your craft down um and it carried some risks you know like if you you know you the longer you stay down there the more the risk of encountering something horrific was um but it it certainly started to operate on more than just the one plane so i'm wondering whether something like that will will manifest in um in sunless skies just because that feels like a a reasonable use of the three-dimensionality of of space mm. um but anyway what what there is at the moment is you've got this um the the first main port that you encounter is called new winchester and it's a similar deal to sunless sea you you can go in you can talk to a bunch of different people you can start to um find out if people need transport to different places you can um you can find uh people who want to for you to go out and get information and bring that back you can start finding resources for trading and for for opening up new branches of story and things like that it's um i think at the moment the only sort of condition to be aiming for is wealth but the the previous games had like you know multiple conditions that your captain might have been you know trying to to work towards so i would assume that those will be added as the game gets built out um and this is one region but i know that obviously this this next one is coming and so i'm sort of interested to see how they knit together because at the moment what you've got is essentially a circular map and you've got things that are sort of so new winchester is in the middle and then you've got things that are within um a, a smaller sort of concentric circle around that or rather a slightly larger and then there's a, an even larger still and that outer ring has you know the more dangerous things to get to and the things that sort of affect your sanity more mm. and and so on um they they don't have defined positions but i believe that you kind of know whether they're going to be in the inner or outer circle 
of this thing. Um, so yeah, and they are so beautiful as well. You encounter these things and I, I don't think I've had a single one that hasn't had far more of its own personality than Sunless Sea ports mm. Mm. had. Um, I, and I, I was talking about this a little bit on Twitter because I didn't really want to spoil it for anyone because that moment of delight when you go, oh wow, I didn't realize that would be a thing that they had in space is a really a lovely part of the game so so one of the things that's really near you um in this initial area is a place called port avon and that's sort of modeled after a bucolic english village with you know a village green and you know an interesting cricket and it's sort of very rich greens and you know that that kind of yeah you did know, you say an interest in cricket or an interesting cricket an one interesting big interesting cricket <laughs> As far as I know, which might develop into interesting. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised to see an interesting exactly. cricket in this game. Yeah. To be fair, like the the purest kind of fallen London character name is like an interesting cricket. Well, Looks that's you across the thing. The they really do go in for that in this. In you know, it feels like they've properly like doubled down on it, in even more so than they usually do. Like I think it was like. I, I can't remember the, the thing, but you know, like they've got things like, um, you know, like the romantic phlebotomist or, you know, whatever. <laughs> yep. That's not a, a specific example, but it's, you know, it's that kind of thing. Um, and for that port, I think I'm currently trying to get pieces of this exotic bronze wood stuff so they can make it into cricket bats but the interesting thing about port avon is that you can really wear out your welcome like you have to renew um renew almost like the tokens that you're allowed to spend finding stuff out or interacting with it by you know throwing a tea party or you know buying people drinks and things like it's very much a kind of almost like a village pub or a village fate where you have to almost like have a buy-in and then you get to chat to people a bit, you know, it's yeah. like, um, and the other one is called Titania and that's flower themed and it's got this beautiful art deco port that is like this gorgeous, um, mechanical flower space. Um, and the different zones of that are, um, named after different things like posy park and you know that kind of thing um and with that one the the i guess the the main thing that you're doing there apart from the the flower related stuff is you are um investing in particular uh buildings which are the the blueprints for which are put forward by different factions so you can kind of voice support for things by paying for the the upgrades to particular buildings and repairing them if they get damaged and you know that kind of thing mm. like sometimes they can get damaged by um i believe they are swarms of chorister bees chorister <laughs> so, bees yes like choir yes yeah no yeah, yeah. That's again. <laughs> exactly. So, and then it, it's weird and it's so lovely. And I'm really excited because it does feel like it has built on some of the things that Sunless Sea didn't do very well. Like it has sort of improved on those. And I used to read some of the blog posts that they'd written about that, which was um, cool because one of the things that was a big problem was that you had to keep going back and back and back to the same location because yeah. that was your home base. That was your main port. And, you know, it was just, uh, and it was, it was nice in some ways in that those little journeys while you couldn't go very far would 
really cement that sense of it being your home because you would get so used to those journeys and the shapes of the the rocks and how you navigated them swiftly or safely and yeah. you know so there was a real sense of i know my way home at this point and you would come back to things that were really familiar and it drilled those into you but it also it put you on such a tight leash and mm. it made it harder to do the thing that you really want to do at the beginning of the game which was to see cool things and explore whereas this seems to be and obviously this stuff might all get totally rebalanced but i have always been able to pick up food and um, fuel at ports and then just kind of continue my journey onwards unless my hull has been massively damaged or i need to find one of the places that helps me reset my terror um uh, the things that I've seen. So, you know, that feels nicer. And there's also, um, there's the introduction of a bank vault kind of thing. So far it's only got like one slot in it and I'm a bit like, okay, well, I don't really know what I would use that for, but the, the, the text, like the flavor text for the thing or the explanate explanatory text, um, says that you can access that from, from other major ports. Like right. there aren't any, as far as I'm aware, in the rest of the reach area that I'm in. But what I'm thinking is that maybe when the Albion region opens up, maybe there will be one part of that where you can have that as your, as as another um branch of your bank and yeah. access particular things rather than, yeah, be permanently like having the pull of this one location how pronounced have you found the survival stuff to be because i always found that with sun of the sea that play like i loved sun of the sea i also realized it's hard to talk about these games without spoilers so that's mm -hmm. one of the reasons to focus on the mechanical stuff but for me sun of the sea definitely had a problem where it had all that sort of magic and it's nice to feel the threat of the pressure of survival but at the same time dying and then redoing the stories really robs them of their yeah uh, like luster it has it has tempered that a lot, but I don't quite know how to answer that exactly because it's so much a work in progress. So this could just be a case of it's easier to test if people aren't, you know, dying a lot. Yeah. yeah, permanently upset or dying or don't want to play anymore because they've been killed so many times. Currently, I'm actually quite happy with where it's at because I haven't had to reset, you know, like I yeah. haven't had to deal with the, the crap side of roguelikes, which is the roguelike bit of it <laughs> that I don't like, or rather roguelite because you would bequeath things to your next captain, I guess. But, um, it's, yeah, so they, they've definitely toned that down and I, and I have felt, risk in terms of, especially with my terror actually that's the thing because mm. this this desire to explore has meant that i spent quite a long time out you know skipping between different places that i found um but there are things that really sort of drain your, your or rather um contribute to your terror meter as you do that in the in the outer circle and so i yeah, that's the thing that was, that, that's the only time that I felt really at risk of dying was when I suddenly realized that I was on like 89% on that meter. And then I was like, I am quite far from home. And I don't think any of the ports that are on the way have any function that would let me get that terror back down like there's nothing less terrifying here basically <laughs> yeah no less scared i could have gone further into the that scary bit but it would have 
I think it would have been a real risk in terms of the fuel that I currently had because your um your inventory is still quite small at this point. Um plus it would have meant going basically back into the terror zone to try and drink tea my way out of this. <laughs> so I decided to try and get back to New Winchester and that was that turned out fine but i was on like 96 percent terror by the end of it and it was like okay <laughs> does that have any effect like before it hits 100 percent? so i genuinely don't know it might have just been that it would kick you up to a different level or just permanently affect you or something or it might have killed me i don't know i mean like before you cap it out did, did so, you start to hallucinate or anything not that i know of so i don't know whether this was just me having that fear because i knew what it would have done in their previous work you're afraid of fear itself well basically um so it might have just been that if i had got to 100 percent, i would have just seen oh there's not a mechanic in the game that fixes this yet or that like that does something off the back of this so maybe that would have completely punctured it but yeah that's the that was a nice level of tension though it was like oh but i really wanted to keep exploring but oh i might die <laughs> so yeah, that's and good. that's my preferred way of doing it so i'm hoping that if they do rebalance it to make it more okay you can only go so far at the start then mm. maybe that would be like i hope that they find other ways to do that basically to sort of ingrain those patterns of wherever you've decided to call home but without it feeling like a slog in the same mm, way yeah i wonder if you could make a game where you know the, the thing that strikes me is like when your terror is getting high it ought to sort of limit your options in some situation or like you're in a situation where you can either attack or, or not attack you maybe the attack option is is either impossible or more expensive for you in some way when you're terrified well doesn't and- hellblade do some interesting things on that Front, sort of oh, okay i was wondering if you could do some some tension between terror and madness and so when you're terrified already and you're in a dangerous situation you have the option to either flee or attack you as a player are making a strategic decision as to which is best um and then the game to reflect your character's mental state assigns costs to those things so mm. the to attack when you're scared like, if you're not that scared, attacking is fine, doesn't have any real downside, but if you're terrified and then you decide to attack anyway, you can still do it, but it kind of costs you a little bit of your sanity. <laughs> like, after that, you're just the crazy guy who attacked that thing <laughs> when you had no reason to think you would win. I wonder... And that could have other consequences. sure there are horror games that have done stuff with well, this. Well, I can't sure. remember it well enough, but Amnesia obviously is famously has its sort of, you know, terror meter that builds up and you have to sort of balance, you know the light that you have available mm. versus the terror that you build up in the dark and stuff and i guess like in a game where you have crew it could actually be divorced from your mental state and it could just be about what your crew think of you if you start to like attack when everyone's terrified you come across as the crazy captain and they're not mm. quite sure if they want to follow you i can't remember because i remember i accidentally flayed someone in um, <laughs> sunless sea and then i think i just decided to double down on that play. <laughs> well i guess that's hey, my brand <laughs> don't hate the player hate the game thank you <laughs> 
there's a podcast title. <laughs> um, but I think I just sort of, and then I had the option to just put the flayed body on the front of my ship. And I was like, <laughs> okay. Oh, fuck so it. Let's like, well, own this I decision. Mean, you know, I've kind of got a. And I, I think I think, the backstory to Heart of Darkness is just in for a penny goes terribly wrong. <laughs> but I think, I think, and this might just be a bad recollection on my part but i think the game then was like your crew are horrified <laughs> you know so there is a sort of there is reputational cost and you know i think it but i and this is the part where i wish that my memory was better because i know that obviously it does interesting things or it does have um you know effects if you are terrified for long enough right but I can't remember the specifics of it, like what that necessarily does and, and the knock-on effects that it has. So it'd be kind of interesting. If, In a way, like yeah. things like, you know, having your crew's feelings towards you be based on what you do. Like if you choose to attack the big monster, even though everyone's terrified, what, how they feel about you should be based entirely on what happens next. Yeah. Because if you succeed, that should be like <laughs> the biggest Holy hero. Shit. We should trust this guy for Hero <laughs> boost ever. Mm. And if you fail, that's when you get into the, this yeah. person can't be trusted, you know, kind of. You're a liability, mate. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, yeah, exactly. Cause, you know, those are the things that really determine in retrospect rather yeah. than in the moment. Although I will say that as I was, um, so I wanted to find out like what the new update would add because I wanted to know whether I could, you know, what, whether to wait for next week before I had an opinion that I was willing to write down for the magazine, right? <laughs> or whether, because obviously otherwise it would just be massively out of date if it changed things massively. And the thing is then it was just like, oh, it's adding this um, this new, you know, area. And then it went on to list the writers and I was like, that's going to need a massive disclaimer then. Because <laughs> it's people like Rich Cobbett who obviously right. write for... PC Gamer from time to time and uh, Cass Core, yep. same and um, uh, Meg Jayanth, who right. uh, I know. <laughs> so yeah. it's like, okay. <laughs> like, I, wondered, I got to know her recently. Or, yeah, so. I wondered about this with uh, Where the Water Tastes Like Wine because that game had sort of like 25 writers <laughs> oh, or something. Course, and yeah. yeah. Uh, I don't know. That, so. yeah. I can't remember how many are games journalists, but I feel like half of them are my friends. <laughs> yeah. yeah, like, because uh, it was. Gita Jackson and Lee Alexander and Kara Ellison and, you know, like... <laughs> Nika Harper. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I didn't know Nika had worked on it. Yeah. Huh. But yeah, so that would... It, basically, yeah, it's... And obviously I'm fond of the game anyway and, like, the art design is, like, they. it really feels like they've kicked that up a notch with this. The Sun of Skies again. Sun the skies, yeah. 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 Um, so I was, you know, I'm just super excited to see more of it and to play mm. more of it and stuff. But yeah, like it's reading in- through that list, I was like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's an early access one? Uh, yes. And, um, I think the plan is that it will release in like September, maybe? podcast voice (laughs) um yeah although that might be the old date i can't remember what the what the updated information for it was because like i say they had to kind of rescope what they could do and and the Mm. stuff that they had available and things like that right so from delightful uh, so far delightfully awful (laughs) from sunless skies then uh to Funless cries. <laughs> wow. You're assuming I'm not going to like. I, would, I, I don't know. I'm not going to lead the judgment. It's just nothing else rhymes. <laughs> not that it has to rhyme, but you know, 
You can play Far Cry 5. Let's just ignore that and pretend that never happened. Gunless? No, that doesn't work at all no. in that game. If it was Far Cry Primal, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Um, Perfect. Let's not try and workshop that. Instead, <laughs> let's discuss the AAA computer video game shooting game. Yeah, Far I was... Five. I was probably more excited about this than most people because... Um, uh, it, it got some optimistic, um, feelings by sort of tackling America and some people hoped it would do that in a politically interesting way. And then it, as it, as it more was revealed, it became clear it wasn't going to do that <laughs> yep. and it has not done that. I was purely excited about it for mechanical reasons. Um, just cause I love, I love it every Far Cry. <laughs> There's really no Far Cry game. Uh, the main series, I have, didn't play like, what was like the console one? Like Far Cry Instinct? Instinct. Yeah, not Primal. I didn't play that. Um, but all the ones I have played, I loved, um, in often different ways. Um, but in particular, I'm a big fan of the modern Far Cry's and I, uh, three was kind of the biggest leap forward for me in the series, which I know is not a common opinion. Uh, I love four, uh, love Primal and Primal's one of the best games ever made. Um, and I don't love Far Cry 5. <laughs> They've, and it's really interesting listening to the conversation around it because no one's talking about Primal. <laughs> it's just, it's entirely about like, oh, this is like, you know, uh, comparing it to 4 and comparing it to 3 and just no one's talking about Primal at all. And for Are me, you Primal. Are the only person who played Primal? I might be. It feels like that. <laughs> Although everyone, I think like Alex Wilshire played it and really liked it. And everyone I talked to who did play it really liked it. But I, um, it was just very good. It definitely seems like it got filed on in the Blood Dragon category, which is the yeah, sort it of felt like, like a spin-off, right? expand like, alone yeah. uh, type thing. And the fact that it had the same layout as Far Cry 4's map, <laughs> sorry, really Bless you. hurt it in that way. Like Ugh. that made a load of people dismiss it, which is crazy because that is the least important, least relevant thing. You would just never know it unless you did like an analysis on the map screen itself. Um, and it was huge. It was like a massive, substantial game. I think it had some eye-rolly um, marketing stunts as well. I think oh, yeah. that was the one where I got like a press release about how to celebrate it. They'd created a living room out of stone. <laughs> so essentially, but but it wasn't a whole living room out of stone. It was they'd made like a PS4 out of stone <laughs> and what? made a pizza out of stone. <laughs> And I was just like, but I don't really understand why those were the two. What? <laughs> and so I had a lot of questions. <laughs> and that, that is the sum total of my knowledge of Far Cry Primal. I can see why that wouldn't intrigue you. Uh, Far Cry 5 is, uh, set in Montana and, uh, it's very much going back to Far Cry 4's a template where they have this weird uh split personality where uh the thing that worked so well in far cry 3 for me at least and in all subsequent games was uh taking out outposts but in particular taking out outposts with a bow and some rocks and some knives and so it had this really real like yeah. primitive feel to it where the the most enjoyable ways to do things were um the low-tech ones and so primal was perfect for me because it's like Let's just strip out all the other shit and just make it entire like bows and rocks and knives, uh, and javelins and clubs in the case of Primal. Um, and that worked beautifully. And then five, uh, all the guns are back and all the vehicles are back. And they, the th- reason I was so excited about it was they said something and I knew I was letting myself get my hopes up, uh, in a way that was unrealistic, but they said, 
uh, along the lo- something along the lines of, oh, we were thinking about how the outposts work because you can approach them from any angle. Mm-hmm. And we were wondering, like, couldn't we just apply that philosophy to the whole game's main story? And I was like, oh, don't toy with me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and God, they've sort of done it, but Jesus, not not like this. Not <laughs> like this. <laughs> so you can pick, like, you start in the center of the map and you can pick any of the three regions to sort of... You can just freely traverse between any of them, but each one is everything you do in that region counts towards some rebellion meter. And when you fill that up, you get to confront the boss. And so that's kind of sort of what I... Uh, had yeah, in mind that's and just that cause right all, yeah exactly it's all, all the things you do contribute to your overall progress and so you don't have to do the missions you can do just rescuing hostages and intercepting convoys and that kind of stuff and it all technically contributes to this meter although every time you do anything like that you save two people's lives and kill some bandits and, and uh, intercept a convoy the bar goes up in, to an extent that you cannot see with the naked eye. <laughs> like, I'm looking right at it. I don't think that's changed at all. <laughs> and then the missions are like 900 points on that bar, which is huge. Um, so it doesn't feel, it feels like they just really want you to do the missions. Um, and then doing outposts could contribute to that, which is great because that's all I want to do. Um, but then there were just way fewer outposts as far as I can tell. There are three regions and I've done one of them now and there were seven outposts in it. So. By my maths, that makes about 21 outposts in the whole game. I don't know the number in Primal, but I feel like it was like 60. It was a lot. It was, that was all I did in the game. I just did it all the time. I had an amazing time. And the game lasted me like 30 hours or something of just exactly what I wanted from Far Cry. Um, this, I'm really, I'm just, I spend all my time just trying to find the outposts. Just where are they? I'm exploring the land. I'm looking for like, there is smoke that comes out of them, um, which has always has been a Far Cry, um, sort of signaling device uh, since I think three uh, outposts have black smoke coming out of them and that's how you know where they are. Unfortunately in Far Cry 5 there are other things that have black smoke coming out of them <laughs> and the outposts are so few and far between that you can't just sort of look around and just see w- like sometimes you can but after you've done like three or four of them looking around there's no smoke anywhere so what I've been doing is I look for the nearest airstrip and I find a plane and I fly over the country and look for black smoke. And then when I see it, I just throw myself out of the plane. <laughs> it's like, okay, this is the next thing I'm doing. You're saying there was no smoke without flyer. <laughs> I was. Uh, yeah. Unfortunately there is sometimes smoke without outpost and there is sometimes <laughs> outpost without smoke. Both those things are true. And that's very annoying. That seems dumb. Yep. Um, <laughs> I agree. And then the way they've, They've sort of, they compromise. They obviously still want plot things to happen at certain points in your progress. And so instead of forcing you to do a linear series of missions, I like that they, they don't force you to do that. They instead, every now and then, send a capture t- squad after you and you get a notification saying, capture squad incoming. And you get the most, you get a series of barks that are trying to explain the mechanics of the situation to you. <laughs> oh, good. In a very transparent way where the enemies yell, Hit him with a bliss bullet. Don't shoot him What's with normal bullets. Bullet? Use a bliss bullet. Well, you have to infer by by uh, how they talk about it. And uh, like, John wants him alive. John wants him alive. We get him alive. Hit him with a bliss bullet. We only need to hit him once with a bliss bullet. <laughs> Use the bliss bullet. That'll knock him out. Only one will knock him out. Then we'll take him to John. John wants him alive. We're going <laughs> to shoot him with a bliss bullet. They say this while they're hunting you and... If you're out in the open, they obviously just moat, they hit you immediately and it's all over. As they say, it only takes one hit. Um, so you hide and that means you hear those barks a lot. <laughs> and then it turns out 
I've learned through bitter experience, they never stop sending cars. I took like seven cars of people out, you know, with their mounted guns and their, their heavy armored dudes, uh, without taking a single hit by holding up and doing it strategically. And the first time I did that, uh, the building I was in caught fire, which is not surprising to me, but I thought survivable, except that as soon as the fire touched me, that counted as a bliss bullet and I passed <laughs> out. <laughs> and so all, the whole oh, thing is God, just, we need no. you to pass out so that then you wake up and the boss is in your face and you get to see the model up close and he talks to you in your oh. face and then tortures you and, and does terrible things to you. Lame. And like that happens in the intro as well. Like the, the arch boss of the whole thing is just right next to you and has you at his mercy and decides not to kill you or something. I, as soon as I could, I started skipping these cutscenes because I hated them. Um, and then this thing of like, it's all open world, except we just, we're going to send infinite guys after you just forever. And anytime you take any damage of any kind, even if it's unrelated to people shooting at you, that counts as you being knocked out by a trank round. Imagine how terrified you'd be if you're in Disneyland having a nice time <laughs> with your family. And then someone, a voice over the tannoy came over and said, Congratulations, Tom Francis. You are being hunted by the story team for a special story experience. This kind of Don't is my try worst and nightmare. run. Don't try and run. They're coming for you. Don't try and run. But like back when you just had to do the mission, the story mission next to, in order to unlock some cool stuff, that was a form of forcing me to do it. But on some level, it was kind of at my own pace. And this is like, you're out in the open world technically. Technically, you can go anywhere and do anything. We're just going to send you infinite guys. They'll never stop. If you take any damage for any reason, that's a story. Re- <laughs> that's amazing how bad an idea that is. Yep. <laughs> Especially because, I mean, obviously, I know that you see Far Cry 3 is that series is kind of a big moment for that series. I, and I agree. But, you know, a lot of people miss the things that were so ambitious about Far Cry 2. And Far Cry 2 Mm -hmm. had loads of problems. But it was very good at creating, like, cinematic-feeling moments. I mean, this is such a video game podcast cliche at this point. But, like, (laughs) it was so good at creating moments where, uh, you know, your kind of randomly assigned best mate is kind of lying in the dirt and you're trying to rescue them. And and the animations were good enough to make those moments feel like cinematic moments without being cinematics. Was Uh, Far Cry 2 the malaria one? Yeah. Yeah. With... Okay, and Far Cry 3 was the rhino one. Far Cry, Far Cry 3 was the gap year gone terribly awry. <laughs> Where was it set? Cause the, the, the second island. one was I think it was in... set in Indonesia, actually. Yeah. Uh, okay. Yeah. So, yeah. I think rhinos, then. I think, I think I Far Cry like 4 rhino. was the rhino one. Oh. Cause that was, I think, I think, I think so. Okay. Uh, but yeah, like, uh, and it, you know, that, that game proved that like, hey, how do you do, you know, Far Cry 2's whole strength was like, you can have a character moment in the open world with systems. It's not going to be perfect all the time, but you can achieve that. And, and <laughs> the new version of a character moment being like a character act, a mo-capped actor is going to hunt you down. <laughs> I'm so sick of just like villains in my face. You know, That's I'm immobilized. You lose all your weapons each time as well. And like, just the, the, chore of going back to a weapon shop and configuring and saying no i wanted a spade in this slot and i wanted a bow in this slot and this in this slot um it's a pain so in the i ass. have a question though because you like or at least don't hate roguelikes and roguelites mm-hmm. so what about this specific iteration of taking your weapons away isn't Oh, so this is like, you're not dead and you didn't start again. There's just a sort of scripted sequence that you then have to do. You have to play some particular mission and do some particular scripted series of events. And if you go off track, you get, it tells you you failed. Oh, so it's more that than the lack of... Yeah, whereas roguelikes, when you die and you start again, yeah, I'm back to square one, but it's the same game I love and I'm going to get to play the bits I love of it. And I have freedom and I'm excited about what I might find on this run. 
Whereas uh, every time Farquhar does this to me, I'm like, oh, what bullshit do you have in store for me? <laughs> what script have you written that I have to follow without knowing what the script is? Um, yeah, that sucks. Uh, speaking of buddies, though, they have brought buddies back in quite a big way. And buddies. Buddies. I, I can't think of him, like, a dark place, unfortunately, but go on. <laughs> you and he and a second one, if you have the leadership perk, yeah, well, are buddies. buddies. Yeah. <laughs> um, so it doesn't, it's, it's sort of, superficially like Far Cry in that your buddies can be taken out and then you run over to them and you save them. And then if you get taken out, you can actually hold on. Your buddies might run over and save you. Uh, but it's mechanically very different in that they're all immortal. <laughs> um, and uh, you can, you have like, you can have up to I think nine or 12 of them. Um, and you can summon, you can just change your mind on a whim as to which one is your buddy and which one you want with you're you. Not my buddy you? Anymore, buddy. Some of them are planes, some of them are dogs, <laughs> some of them are, <laughs> are bears. Say, are you playing as Taylor Swift? Say, <laughs> 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 like, oh, I need you right now. Come on, come yeah. on. <laughs> she walks out in a, you know, a, a, like a shirt that has handwritten on it, plain, bear, buggy. <laughs> I've done it Jet where like... Lena Dunham. I'm lying down, uh, I'm bleeding out, and unfortunately my dog has also been taken out, and he needs me to revive him, and I need him to revive me, and so I just go into the menu and dismiss my dog and, and choose a different buddy, and that buddy shows up and then Red saves me, <laughs> and then I get up and I save my dog, and dismiss the other buddy. Oh, I was imagining that you both got, like, brought back to life by a plane. <laughs> like, I wish the plane would resuscitate you. The Cessna kind of nursing you. <laughs> like, landing on you rhythmically. Like, holding secure. you in its wings. <laughs> <laughs> growling at nearby <laughs> all think, buddies are dogs <laughs> yeah exactly there's dogs of different sorts the dog of planes the Cessna and so on yeah do you know what is interesting listening to this is this sounds a lot like Ghost Recon Wildlands like huh. a lot a lot and Tom Clancy's Ghost Recon Tom Wildlands. Clancy's Ghost Recon Wild Wild Lads um, and is that what, the one with the llamas yes cool um except it's not cool because it's not a very good game but what this is this i find this disheartening because there are things i uh sort of you know i've 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 been around the uh the block with ubisoft a bit on how they make games and and how that process works and i've talked to eve gamo about literally this like problem of repetition across games and, and structures being visible and when i spoke to him about literally this the thing he said was that if you can see the the point where the kind of the big studio system has shared resources or shared ideas then they've failed mm. which feels like i mean i appreciate his candor on that but this feels like an instance where they failed because like ghost recon wildlands has the same just cause derived structure where you uh you sort of heat up an area of the map in order to unlock the next stage of it uh it's a lot bigger but it's also designed for multiplayer so it's not quite the same thing uh, it also has a system where you have four buddies buddies <laughs> with you the entire time who are basically invulnerable magic people that teleport into the sniper positions you want them to be in and can help you out if you're in trouble um it doesn't have it doesn't have uh the people shooting you to force you into a cutscene thing but it does have but that's because it's a multiplayer game and so it does different things in order to get across its edgy post gta character writing and like it's just really frustrating to see like because obviously those games would have been contemporaries in development at least for some part of it mm. and it feels like their process is such that they can't like because Ghost Recon Wildlands wasn't spectacularly well received but clearly maybe there wasn't time to steer Far Cry 5 away from systems that don't work as well but they, I don't know. they have made a conscious effort to get away from the Radio Towers map icons system right. um, which actually 
uh, I never had a problem with. And so I'm kind of annoyed about this because the, one of the advantages of that system was I knew where the next outpost was. I could always find the outposts and uh, now I can't. Now I just, uh, when I had six of the seven outposts in this region that I just did in, in Far Cry 5, I just had to go on Google and just search for where the last one is. I, I'm never going to find it otherwise. Um, whereas back when they put I, a shitload of icons on my map, some people felt daunted by that, but I felt like, oh, I want to do outposts. I can see where the outposts are. I'm going to do those. And it was just an efficient way of finding the things that you wanted to do. Yeah, it was very mechanical and very gamey, but I guess I, that doesn't bother me. Like I'm, I mean, you it, are I'm in it game. for the game. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, I think I think if if there's the con- if there's oh, I almost said the c word if there's um if there's stuff <laughs> in the video game that you do like <laughs> to do, then having it itemized like that does not necessarily ruin it. Like it's not What's it's the c word content. Okay, <laughs> the other c. <C-word. laughs> Um, yeah, I was like, <laughs> okay. It's not the... <laughs> this, this escalated. <laughs> it's not like, I mean, because, you know, Zelda Breath of the Wild does nails this completely in a sort of, like, basically all of its fun kind of way um, without needing a map. But short of that, I think I'd probably rather have the game to tell me where the particular thing I want to get out of it is. Because mm. that seems to be the Ubisoft model, right? Like, for these open worlds, like, there's probably going to be at least one activity you enjoy. So imagine though, if you went to Ubisoft and you went to their kitchen, you were like, where's the coffee maker? And they were like, mm, find it. That's part of the experience. <laughs> Climb a radio tower. And showed you where everything in the office was. That like, <laughs> and this is where we Here's keep my the printer. cup of soup. The, the system they got instead is quite a good idea, which is that every time you rescue a hostage or save someone from like a cougar attack or whatever, anytime you have a civilian who's, who's now safe, you can talk to them and they'll just say something like, oh, I heard the uh, the cultists have taken over John's ranch and you might want to check that out. Or uh, I heard these like magic wolves you're fighting all come from this one place. Maybe you want to go there. And that gets marked on your map. Um, so you get map icons, but sort of bit by bit and from local knowledge, which is a nice idea. It's kind of, that's a very Bethesda way of doing it. Yeah. And I wonder, I'm really curious about the system actually, because you're finding different people who are different like looks and uh different genders and so i wonder did they have to record every possible piece of information they can give you in every voice probably yeah is it like maybe it's like if you're near the dog place (laughs) where they make the magic dogs um they always spawn this type of npc because they know that the dog line is recorded by that voice actor (laughs) (laughs) yes but uh, to be honest, like, you know, seeing the way Bethesda do it, where, like, they have, like, seven lines for people to say, and then they have, like, 19 voice actors and have all 19 record the same lines for some reason. Like, they act as if writing is super expensive and voice acting is super cheap. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. We should uh, we should pause also to note the, uh, speaking of writing, the amazingly bad item descriptions and oh god yeah this is basically my only experience of the game so far because i haven't played it and based on people's initial reactions i probably won't um but i did see these uh in chat and like i i'm struck <laughs> by how bad they are. so each of the each of the it of, was basically one of those your dad's been writing yeah. it is, object no it's, it's, it's not even that it's like your dad's on facebook again yeah like it feels like such a shit like basically every single one of the item descriptions should be in like quite low res impact font on a picture inexplicably of a minion 
from Despicable Me. <laughs> like, they're all of that tier of, like, observational, kind of slightly edgy, a little bit political sort of thing. What was the one about, like, if this thing burns through ammo faster than a fake news story gets shared yeah, it's like, on the uh, internet? There was one of them which is like, them? this... this gun shoots such a long way you have to account for the curvature of the earth bad news flat earthers <laughs> <laughs> yeah it, it, i regret to inform you they're all like that <laughs> i just don't know what they were going for that's the like well i mean it's it feels oh it feels like what's going to happen on sunday which is essentially the the april fools oh, uh, Jesus, cascade yeah. of workshopped jokes and bants gets released into the wild. Thank God that's a Sunday this year. I feel for news people when it's not. It yeah, has- for sure. It's on Easter as well, so hopefully people are mostly off yeah. not having to deal with this nonsense. It has the feel of, like, a copywriter, hopefully an intern, hopefully not a professional, uh, being tasked with writing descriptions and being told, A, zero information about the thing they're describing, and sometimes they're like it's really... I'm just, I want to buy an aircraft. I want to know, if, does it have guns or not? Like, there's a whole class of aircraft has no weapons, cannot fight at all. There's a class of aircraft that have machine guns and missile launchers and bombs. I really need to know whether they have missile launchers or bombs. And doesn't say that ever. Um, but they were tasked with, there has to be one joke in every description. And they had fucking nothing to work with. <laughs> it's yeah. just, See, to me, I don't it know. Feels there's just more like, you know, when you get an overly specific brief from a client, and it's like, look, we want you to have fun with this and we want it to be great and really funny and like viral. But also I've seen these four memes and <laughs> you need to include them somehow. And like, and then, you know, the, the writer head in hands is like, am I going to be named in the credits for this? Because, <laughs> you know, uh. I think that's the thing. It's like a good item description in a game, particularly well, a good funny item description is like, a little, particularly like in point and click adventures and RPGs, always felt like a little peek behind the curtain to get a little bit of the kind of voice of the game's designers, right? Mm. Like particularly talking about like an old point and click adventure or something, it always felt like you, that was your way of kind of like, you're a little bit closer, maybe this is a bit of a wanky point, but like you're a bit closer to the writers at that point because it's almost like, you know, there's a sense of like, you know, nobody's going to read this. You know what I mean? It's like the part of the game where you get to write whatever the fuck you want because, I mean, you've had this for Heat Signature, right? Like, obviously people should read this because yeah. it's funny, but it's like, this is almost like the designer writing to you. Because yeah. that, well, that, that, basically that, a reward, like trying to describe what a, a fucking person- sword is. <laughs> yeah, exactly. like, it's a personality led reward for the people that do read them. Yeah. And also it's writing that isn't attached to a character in the game or to the story of the game. So it is, it does come from just the game. It is the game writing to you. And maybe this is a consequence of like, the game being produced so like kind of wanting to be a little bit political but desperately not wanting to alienate anybody so you end up in this sort of like bland nothing space uh where it unfortunately ends up aligning itself with the worst dad memes this is also like um because i wasn't ex- interested in the in the political aspect of it i um uh didn't that was never why i was interested in, it in the first place but even for me holy shit this game is programmed it's just like all like the enemies are pro-gun and then also the allies are pro-gun there's just no other side to it at all it's just 100 percent guns are awesome everyone should have guns yeah yeah it's, it's, it, that that alone basically prevents it from ever at, at, like even getting within like a continent for, of topicality basically <laughs> like yeah man and it's like 
you know, the other Far Cry, well, I was going to say the other Far Cry games I play, you know, all have guns in them and I want to use the guns and they're cool. Actually, Far Cry Primal does not. Far Cry Primal is perfect in every way. It has no flaws. <laughs> well, um, you were, yeah, you were just talking about how it was great where they removed yeah, the guns. Yeah, it was. I mean, <laughs> you're not you anti-violence. Know, in, the, in the context, in the, in the primeval uh, era, I feel like the gun control debate would be over the control of javelins, which <laughs> an extremely powerful form of weaponry that's brand new and perhaps too powerful and should not be in would the hands it, hang of just on, everyone. Hang on, hang on. You're talking about a game with magic owls. <laughs> yeah. Not that, like, I'm, not, I'm not really thinking about gun control so much at this point as a form of kind of more like military escalation. Like, surely it would take the form of magic animals before it would oh, form Actually, of, like, um, your pets, like, uh, you know, uh, panther or, or a bear, that's actually the most powerful weapon in the world. Yeah, I think that's the thing that bothers me about Far- the new Far Cry. Is it's such a formula that like it has to be allowed to shed ideas from previous games that aren't quite mm. as appropriate. Like if they're going to set one in America, it doesn't necessarily also need to have the crazy animals. I mean, <laughs> yeah. maybe that is true. I don't know. I think you can tame them. I haven't got to that point yet, but I've seen people like petting their mountain but Chris, lion. It's not like the 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 magic owls died out. There must be like magic <laughs> eagles by now as well. And, Should like, be even more magic. Yeah. Right. You joke, Pip. That's pretty much literally the plot of Assassin's Creed. <laughs> Look, I once described Assassin's Creed as the game where you go backwards and do things and then go forwards and do things. So it's like, I don't think I have a reliable understanding of that game. <laughs> hmm. Do you yeah. think you'll spend much more time with it? Do you, yeah. Are you just addicted to outposts, Tom? Is this- uh, yeah, I've got to do all the outposts. I've got to find them all. I'll just look up a guide to where they are and I'll just do them all. Because they are really good, again. Like, I feel like... I want to believe... I don't know if this is true, but I want to believe there's a bunch of people who make the outposts in Far Cry... All the Far Cry games. And they're just the best fucking designers in the world. They're just so good at their jobs. And they're being allowed to do the best work they could do. Even in this game where, you know, I have loads of problems with it. But actually the tools it gives you and the mechanics it, it provides for you work great for outposts and the outposts are really well designed again and I love approaching them and I love just, uh, you know, I'll jump out of my plane uh, and let it crash to the ground and while I'm parachuting I discover I'm allowed to use binoculars while I'm parachuting which let me tag people while I'm parachuting <laughs> over people. I'm just like, ooh, look at those big guys. <laughs> and then I land and then I summon my dog and my dog can smell people and so he tags them for me as well. Um and then like bit by bit over thirty to forty minutes I pick apart this outpost and figure out how to take people out without anyone else uh discovering the bodies. And uh yeah, I've done I guess I've done seven or eight of them now and uh done everyone undetected and everyone's just been awesome. And I just don't need the rest of the game. <laughs> just- I just want like what would you do if the person or people who designed the outposts also wrote the flavor test. <laughs> how would you? How would you Honestly, reconcile? That, that, that almost wouldn't surprise me because it's kind of like you know when like a programmer does art. It's called programmer art, and we all know programmer art is shit. Like no one expects programmer art to be good. This is like designer writing. <laughs> like, oh, you got the designers to write the copy. Ooh, we should have got a writer to do that. Yeah, that would actually make it a lot better because it would mean that like oh okay fine like. They had, they were good at this. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't matter that they weren't good at it. Well, it does matter, but it's not, you know, it's not as like, oh, no, this is, this was someone's job. Like, yeah. To be honest, I mean, um, 
it's been depressing to see how bad the writing is. It's been even more depressing to see how much Reddit is lapping it up. Like, there have been four or five hugely popular posts about, like, just screenshots of that text just saying, oh, look at the flat earth joke. Like, the, the title for that was like, Fuckery 5 has no chill. Like, uh, oh my god, they're going for the juggler saying the earth is not flat. <laughs> yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, Amazing. So, there's a bunch of people out there who like this. Sorry, yeah, I <laughs> a glimpse into, I don't know. Into darkness. Should oh. we? <laughs> <laughs> you were saying, Tom? <laughs> Uh, there's another game I played and I wanted to... Oh, yeah, go for it. Shout out. Um, I also played a bit of All Walls Must Fall. Huh, yeah. Which is a game I'd, I'd see... It was on my radar because all the GIFs of it that they posted in development looked awesome and it finally came out. Um, it's about... Uh, well, <laughs> it's about the like Berlin in an alternate future where the wall didn't fall, I think. Um, it's very sci-fi and it's seemingly all set in nightclubs as far as I can tell. Um, and it's all about time travel and I've only played a little bit of it, but the mechanics are already really interesting where one of your basic abilities is rewind. You have like this time currency that you can spend. It's kind of like a, a syndicate type perspective and you're just controlling one guy. Um, your first mission is to, like go into a nightclub and just kill this person and there's bodyguards and stuff and uh, if you want to take a weapon through security the bodyguards are going to attack you so you, you either do that or you leave your weapon behind and then figure out a way once you're in but it, you have a rewind ability so in combat if something goes wrong and you just rewind and spend some points to do that and, and try and do it better um, but then as you progress you can unlock other abilities and one of them is uh, rewind everything except yourself and then another one is rewind only yourself. So you, you can choose like one or the other of those and then eventually with enough points you can have both. And that's a really interesting ability for a stealth game because it's kind of like, it's not just a stealth game, it's more like a Deus Ex type game where you can either shoot everybody or you can stealth it or you can hack or you can try and talk your way through. Um, and so once I got the ability to rewind everything except myself, what I discovered I could do is like shoot the locked door open barge in, all the guards shoot at me, drones attack me, I run past them to the point where I'm behind where their vision cones used to be looking, and yeah. then I rewind everything except me, and they're all back to their unalert state, and I'm where I need to be, huh, and I can just cool. sneak through. So it has this weird, like, best of both worlds thing, where you get to do, like, the crazy action thing and and engage with all the combat stuff, but then you also get to kind of, like, reset it and and go back to a stealthy state. Cool. And it's the time travel premise. I haven't got very far with it. I've done like two missions. My first mission was to break into this nightclub and kill this one person for reasons that they don't explain to you. Then the next mission is break into this nightclub and seduce that person. The same person that you just killed on the last mission. Huh. <laughs> They're alive again now. And now you, they need you to seduce him. And it's not explained why. And it has the most amazing shit. I forgot to tweet this. I got to tweet this. <laughs> I screenshotted it frantically because I was just like overjoyed. Um, so you can rewind in dialogue trees as well. Um, and when you have to seduce this person, it's in a nightclub. So one, like you can invite them to dance with you. And then when you dance with them, it tells you what kind of dance they did. And then you have dialogue options for what kind of dance you want to do. Like flirty dance, diss dance, <laughs> aggressive dance, and something else dance. And then if you do the wrong kind of dance, you can rewind time. <laughs> so you think, go back and do the better kind of dance. 
This sounds incredible. <laughs> yeah, it's it's quite something. Um, I was thinking it sounded familiar, and I'm like, ah, oh, this is one of the things that I proofread at like crazy o'clock. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. For, for the magazine that goes on well, I've sale. Actually, I've been getting um, this current week coming. So, press releases yeah. about it for forever, but it's one of those things that I just don't. I mean, I it honestly never respond to games that I've been sent press releases about. It's somehow not at all what I expected. I, I followed it, and it seemed like really pretty, and from the title and the setting it sounded like it was gonna be very political actually it's more like a very sci-fi mechanics driven deus exy type game like deus ex meets syndicate sexy deus ex <laughs> with with dancing dialogue trees <laughs> that sounds so you're saying you're only a little bit in yeah there's two missions i was playing it on my laptop on the plane and my laptop didn't run it very well so right. i didn't get any further with it I, i'm excited to get Maybe back to it worth revisiting then like just because i would like to play this now yeah <laughs> Like, you know, I've, I've, you know, a lot of descriptions. Honestly, developers, if your game has sexy rewind <laughs> Deus Ex dance <laughs> challenges, then lead with that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, that sounds right. That's all walls must fall. Is that yes. out, out? So was it early yeah, access? Question mark? Yes. And I think it's properly out now. Awesome. Are you ready to pretend that we haven't just had about an hour's break? Tom Francis, your microphone is still off. I'm not... I was ready. No, <laughs> I wasn't ready. Now I am. Good. A seamless break. I was born ready. Then, in the intervening time, I became not ready. Now I'm ready again. <laughs> Shall we do some questions? Great idea, Pip. Woo! Let's do some questions. And the questions begin with John, who writes, Have you ever been turned off to the point of uninstalling by a game's story. Recently I played Super Hot, and the oppressive We Control You story just made me feel so uncomfortable I stopped playing. Yeah, nearly with Far Cry 5. <laughs> right. I was, I was on a, like, it depends a lot on the mechanics, of course, but I was... Uh, there's a script for mission where you have to fight the boss. Uh, I'd done all the, the rebellion stuff, and I'd got enough rebellion points to fight the boss. When I did fight the boss, it's like a dogfight, and the dogfight was like insanely difficult it just if i no matter how much i shot the enemy never lost any health and if he ever flew towards me i were on an inevitable collision course and it would instantly kill me um and you can't quit that mission you can't get out of it once you're in it that's your whole save game is tied up in that until you win it you cannot play the game and i was literally thinking i might just never play the game again it might just be the end of it (laughs) and then the only reason I actually did it with the dogfight itself is just awful. Um, but miraculously, and the game so much trains you not to do this and trains you not to think this is possible. And games in general have trained us not to think this is possible, but you can just like eject from your plane, parachute down anywhere in the world, get a fucking car, drive to the nearest mounted gun, get in that and shoot the plane with that. Like the whole open world is completely open to you. There are no mission limits. You can just go wherever you want. Uh, and on regular missions, it will t- routinely fail you for going too far from the objective. But on this one thing that feels super scripted and it feels incredibly annoying, if you just abandon your plane and just go off and go out into the open world, it's actually just a, a kind of the best way to do a boss mission, which is like, there's a guy in a plane, use anything in this entire vast open world right. to attack it. Great. I will happily do that. I will like, take a car and then I'll deal with all the enemies I fight along the way and then I'll find this one mounted gun that I've actually used before that I know is really powerful and it's like a high caliber thing and then I use that and it completely shredded this guy's health and then I 
after you shoot him, he parachutes down to wherever you actually killed him. So it kind of like manipulates some, oh, sorry, it, uh, ties into and, and builds on the open world in that way. And that wherever you happen to kill him, that's where he lands. So if it happens to be an enemy base, that's a problem. And if it happens to be wilderness, you're okay. Enemies will try and like surround him and protect him. But if he's in the middle of nowhere, you get a chance to take him out however you want. So it's, it's like, it's almost a great mission. They just don't tell you you can do that and they mm. they try and force you to do a dogfight and the dogfight itself is awful my answer to this would be gta 5 um which i found so unpleasant past a certain point that i uh didn't want to continue playing mm. it basically yeah, me too, actually. um and that's a huge shame that's not a shame because <laughs> what did you miss <laughs> exactly what did i miss um and moved on to the kind of sandboxy online stuff which was fun I must have done this with a fair few games. I think I actually did it with GTA 5, but like, I don't remember which specifically, so I don't want to just guess. And It was, yeah. it was Trevor's introduction in GTA yeah. 5 for me. Just stop there. Yeah, um, which is just a nasty bit of writing. Mm. Like, it, there's no redeeming feature to it, I don't think. It's, it's explicitly a, it, it's both in the moment graphic, sexist, and, uh, schlocky and also in a kind of meta textual way a rejection of or a kind of like uh sort of kick aimed downwards at the lost and the damned which was the most kind of human and like it was it was one of the more human parts of gta 4 which was the most human and interesting gta had ever <laughs> been so it's like it was such a kind of Nah, it, it's just the whole, that whole process is, is, uh, that whole enterprise was, was fraught with, um, some really, I think, uh, lamentable creative decisions. But that for me was the kind of tip of it. Cause it, because I mean, it wasn't, you know, shitting on someone else's work. It was shitting on the most human, human aspect of their own work. You know what I mean? It was yeah. like an explicit rejection of, of what GTA had almost become in terms of the kinds of stories it was telling. And I just hated it, hated every part of it. Yeah. I agree with that. Um, and I also think there's a, there's actually a, a clear dividing line between. I often think when Far Cry Five, when Far Cry the series pisses me off with its plot stuff, it's often sort of accidental. It's sort of like it's trying to do something and it fails. Yeah, it's tied with GTA as well, right? GTA was just fucking mean. It knew what it was doing and it was trying to do it and it it succeeded and it was just fucking horrible. It's just yeah. nasty people being mean. Yeah. I think there are often games where it's not the storytelling, so maybe this is outside the remit of the question, but there are just worlds that I don't want to be in, and the cost to me in terms of my time just isn't worth it if the the pleasure is not much or if there's other things I'd rather be doing, and, and more and more as as it has become my work rather than just a, a source of pleasure as a hobby, which is perhaps the wrong way. It, it feels like it would be the other way around. You would only play things <laughs> for fun. But I think I, when I was by, uh, when I was um, buying and playing things as a hobby, I would curate because, you know, you only have a certain amount of time, you only have a certain amount of money. So you'd pick things quite carefully or you'd stick with things that felt safe um, and you'd maybe go play them to completion, even if they weren't amazing, because that was the thing that you'd spent your money on, right? Um, whereas 
having things more available to me because you know they they have potential for articles or features or reviews or things like that um there's actually a wealth of things so i choose to spend my time you know i there's more stuff available to me so i have to be more discerning over what i want to do with the the very finite amount of space in a magazine that is available right it's like do i want to mm. to kick something or do i want to hero something that is small but people might have missed and that's doing a really cool thing right mm. so i and and having more things available does mean that i tap out of things like you know i i will make that judgment earlier because I, I need to for the sake of the time available and the, the, the work that needs to be done off the back of it. Right. Mm. But yeah. Yeah. Next question comes from anonymous, just a, a, an anonymous person, not, not the hacker collective <laughs> from a few years ago. Um, and, uh, they write, here is a picture of victory progress in games. So we should clarify that. I'll link this in the show notes because I'm going to have to describe a graph <laughs> after some rum. So bear with me. So this is a graph on Twitter uh, by Daniel Solis, uh, which describes the kind of arc of your sense of your own progress, I would imagine, over time in games. And so... As a kind of, uh, the, your progress, your feeling of progress in a casual game is a, uh, a linear escalation, uh, presumably in step with whatever kind of like, uh, meted out reward you're getting every minute you play. Uh, your progress in a, in a competitive game is, uh, hugely erratic based on, uh, factors of a given game match. Uh, your progress in, uh, is what is described on the graph as a combo heavy game, but I probably talk, describe as any game with a kind of like high technical skill ceiling is a series of plateaus or like a staircase where you move up in steps, uh, making big leaps whenever you make a big knowledge progress, but also then plateauing for a while. Um, and then finally your progress in an engine building game, which is probably best described as like Infinifactory or a Zactronics game, uh, is extremely slow at first and then increases as a kind of exponential curve when you start to understand the mechanics of the game. I need to, that's me having explained the graph. I think the combo one, I read that as being a step because the plateau is when you are putting together the sections of a combo, like pressing A and B and whatever at the right time. And then the, the, the vertical leap is when you unleash it. Possibly. Although I would say that, um, like Dota is a combo game in that sense. Because you do go up in. I guess maybe this is an interesting one because it. I'm not sure how how to break down the moment to moment. As yeah. In whether these there's these no time factor. Are, yeah. I was like, taking yeah. it as like time hours is, or years, like not. Yeah. Seconds. The the time the time axis, which is the x axis, is is an odd one in this one. So yes. to get to the question, just to colour the discussion before we get to that. Um, the question is, which do you prefer, basically? Like, what is your preferred kind of curve? So, um... I definitely I, have an answer to this. So I appreciate that this might be just going back to, you know, nitpicking a graph, which is maybe slightly unfair, but I would take issue with the linear nature of the casual 
game so it's it's basically billed as a thing where you you know you accrue points at a steady rate over time right Mm. but I would argue that casual games can keep me hooked in. It's not a preference thing, but it's like a, you know, it 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 exploits, you know, your biological pr- propensities, right, or your neurological, you know, predilections. Because what it often does, and I play a lot of casual games, is, or you know, rather, I play a lot of casual, um, like match three type things or things that have like seasonal events, and so what they tend towards is, you know, offering you really pleasant spikes of progression and then unexpected hurdles that you need to to get over. So to take my current match three thing that I've been playing for like, I think two years now. Um, it's, but you could get this with that candy crush or anything, you know, it, it, it's that feeling of, oh, you know, these levels aren't necessarily arranged in any sensible order. Like sometimes you get like a whole new power set or something, but you know, level 600 and level 1200 could be exactly as difficult as each other. It's just that, you know, the next one along might be super difficult and you then use up all of your current lives trying to like bash against that one just to get past it. And then that's the point where, oh, maybe a microtransaction will give you more lives. And that's the thing that will get you beyond this. And and so, and I appreciate that's not quite the question because the question was about like what what you prefer. But I would say that the casual progress actually doesn't speak to why I play those games for such long periods of time or why I feel so sort of involved in them. I would extend that point. I think you're absolutely right to draw attention to what is unclear about this graph, which is the time scale, <clears throat> and why I would actually say and i appreciate this is turning into a criticism of the graph rather than um and that's the question specifically is that actually and i'd recommend if you are listening to this as a podcast which is the medium in which we present this then go and have a look at this graph in the show notes just so you can see what we're talking about but sorry actually i would say all of these things are contained within the staircase at different scales so the, the, the way the graph depicts your feeling of progress in a competitive game where you're erratically ping-ponging up and down, I would say that that is actually true of the experience of having plateaued in a competitive game where you are, you know, you're kind of performing on average consistently, which would give you the flat line. But your experience for every individual game is sometimes like a great win and then a terrible loss. And the reason you're getting both of those things kind of at a 50-50 rate Mm. It, which results in the flat line is because like a flat line in a competitive experience or in a gaming experience is not made up of a neutral performance. It is made up of an even balance of failure and success, which is inevitably spiky, which means that that jagged line for um, competitive play is actually the same as the flat line in the, what is described on the graph as a combo game. So actually the whole, th- I think I might have just deconstructed this graph, but like, or like, I would okay so to sort of maybe rescue both of us from this like no, quagmire no, of uh, I, what I would say is that an interesting thing to bear in mind is that I think a lot of people would like to view their ideal progress in a game as 
either the curve that starts at zero and then bends up to a sort of like <laughs> exponential increase yeah. or it would be the regular improvement over time but the way that both human brains work and the way that games and matchmaking work mean that neither of those would actually be a pleasurable or realistic experience most of the time. Either if you felt like you were just always earning the same amount of points over the same amount of time, you'd get bored and wander off. Yeah. Or if you sort of had that, oh, I'm the engine building one, which is the curve, um, you'd sort of like take a while to get started and then like suddenly like, oh, you know, it's, this, my effectiveness has you know, zoomed off vertically, that would, you know, that the game wouldn't be able to keep up with you in any realistic way in that way. So maybe, but I would say that the engine building side of things maybe actually helps explain to me why people enjoy roguelikes and roguelites so much because it does reflect that kind of element of it, right? You start out slow, you build the thing, and then suddenly you're like doing crackers amounts of damage towards the end of your run or whatever hopefully and so that's an actually like to me that kind of represents something really useful in terms of why maybe people enjoy that and actually how that would work if the time axis extended out would be a series of like asymptotes right it would start at zero again after that line sort of zooms off into the ether you know and then curve up again you know maybe over a shorter space of time but it would go up and up yeah and and i think yeah like that that actually is really cool because that graph maybe has shown me like has given me a visualization yeah i think i think it's like i think i I I think i think figuring out why i don't agree with this graph is kind of interesting in terms of yeah for the reasons you say but even so, like, I would say that, like, that engine, engine building curve should ideally probably be scaled to fit within any given step on your kind of, uh, staircase progress. Um, in the, almost every sort of, you know, it's not an exponential curve. It's an exponential curve up to the next tier of your ability, at which point you begin at the beginning of the next climb. How about you, Tom? Like, what, what does this graph speak to you of? <laughs> Uh, the games I like, I think, are the combo builder ones here. I'm thinking of like Slay the Spire, where mm. you sort of, you suddenly realize, oh, I could be combining this and this and this. And then I suddenly do way better than I used to do. And that's really good. Uh, Splunky has a little bit of that as well, although it's very informed by what you happen to find in that run. It's like, oh, if I find a jetpack, of course I'm going to use it. There's no decision there. It's yeah. just, I, if I get a jetpack, I use the jetpack. And those are the spikes on that, on that run. It's just like, oh, I happen to get the good stuff. So of course I do that. Um, the sort of the, the nature of this graph implies that if you get a better run, you continue to get better runs forever, and it never goes down, um, which is uh, not true of something like Splunky. Mm-hmm. Um, I certainly do not go in for multiplayer games uh, precisely because the graph there goes up and down, <laughs> and you can go backwards. You can have a great game, and then the next game you have is terrible because. The other person is just better. Hmm. Also, like, yeah, I think uh, I, I, I'd i be interested to know, I guess, just in an abstract way, like what the person who created the graph was envisioning in each scenario. Like, 
what specifics because we've actually overlaid a lot of what we assumed or you know the experiences that we've had because you know directly competitive to some people will mean street fighter right but for me it means dota or for me it means counter-strike or you know that kind of thing yeah and those are sort of all also affected by your ability to find teammates or to find the modes that suit you or to, you know, like all of that stuff is kind yeah. of, it's, it's interesting. That's but, why I think the problem is one of scale. Yeah. But yeah, it's kind of, uh, and as well, the people at the upper ends of things or at the lower ends of things also don't fall into these experiences either. Like if you are bad at a thing or if, if it doesn't cater to what you're interested in, you will probably never you know, experience those elements of it. So mm. the game, like, if this is, you know, representative of the game in its average state or a type of game in its average state, like, it also doesn't sort of speak to the experiences of people who maybe aren't very good at them but maybe still enjoy them for some reason or still play them or don't or... Yeah, it's interesting. I I would thoroughly advise like looking up the graph, and this isn't in a in a way of like I don't want people to like pull it apart or like focus in on the person who made it because obviously it's like a time thing and it's an interesting thing and I, you know it's really nice that they they did it. This is more just a kind of I'm interested in what people get out of looking at it. Yes, I think it's thought provoking rather than m- meaningful in and of itself. But yeah, you're right. There's not a reason to. Kind of like it's not a kind of thing that a person has done right or wrong. It's like an interesting starting point for a discussion. Yeah. I just really wanted to like highlight that. Yes, indeed. Yeah. So basically, of, like, directing traffic at yeah. Any, or Actually, yeah. Or, or to um, yeah, short version. Don't be a dick on Twitter. Would be the um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, speaking of uh, dicks from Twitter, Marsh Davies. <laughs> <got in. laughs> Son of a bitch. Got in touch nice. to write. Uh, judging by its pitiful presence at GDC this year compared to last, VR gaming is not taking over the world's predicted. So what he's ne- clearly in as good a mood as... <laughs> <laughs> look, you got to have that real flavor. Actually, spring that I, look, back you're just podcast. lucky I didn't do the voice for this. <laughs> um, <laughs> the word pitiful, though, it's, uh, that's amazing. What I needs, love this. What needs to happen to resuscitate it? Will this likely happen? And should it? So this is a very pertinent question to ask Marsh at this time in for me um because so a couple of weeks ago on the podcast when Alex was here I uh outlined again my similar qualms about VR gaming specifically um my frustrations with the hardware in its current form and the software and the service environment and all of it um, those initial frustrations were, uh, as I said at the time, because I was at the beginning of a project I was working on, and that project is not coming to an end. Um, that project is about uh, VR cinema and about other forms of kind of like immersive storytelling and virtual reality that um, I've talked to lots of people about, uh, some of them very recently, lots of them very recently. Uh, thanks, GDC, for <laughs> hoovering up the availability of everybody in San Francisco for a week. Um, but what I've kind of... I, so I've kind of... I've had a huge... Um, sort of uh attitude shift towards vr without changing my feelings towards vr games specifically so i think that there is uh there is still um evidence like there is still a big investment in games uh in, in sorry in vr by companies with a lot of money 
to spend. There's still a lot of opportunities for people to make interesting creative things in VR and VR, the, the sort of the gold rush, the, the, the rush of capital surrounding it is providing interesting creative people with opportunities to make genuinely cool things in an environment that doesn't come along very often because at the moment there is no precedent. There is kind of no old conservative formal way of doing things to be measured against. So people just get to do more or less whatever they want. And if you want an example of this, go look up anything by Tyler Hurd, um, who is able to make kind of like exuberant music videos in VR um, with basically no oversight yet funded by um, big media giants because there's a hunger for like figuring out what this medium can do. All of this stuff comes under the remit of VR cinema or like virtual reality experiences rather than games. I do think that games at the moment are limited to a quite pedestrian array of light gun variants and some interesting things. And it'll take like an equal and equivalent effort needs to be kind of undertaken to to make VR viable. Like I almost feel like the range of freedom that you're used to in a traditional video game exposes the weaknesses of VR in a way that cinema doesn't or the way that filmmaking doesn't. So would you say that you have come around to my soapbox of that the best things in VR are not happening in games, they will happen outside games? Absolutely. Although I think, (laughs) yeah, absolutely. But I think they will also inevitably involve, like, but the other thing about this crucially is that loads of people from games are making these experiences like it it inevitably requires the input of game developers and this is kind of what i think the formation of a new medium looks like god knows where that medium will end up being distributed or what its monetization strategy will be but honestly if you're interested in creative stuff you shouldn't really care about that that much whether it gets ticketed or whether it's sold to software or whether it's something at an event at sundance or tribeca like it really shouldn't matter that much it regard you know relative to the work that's being done and i think my turning point with vr was not getting a more more effective light gun game out of it it was actually seeing things like um old friend by tyler Hurd, which is great um dear angelica by oculus story group which is uh, a really great use of well i think it was the reason tilt brush was invented but it is um a really fascinating use of that um there's loads of really cool things that exist presently and uh, you know, maybe there's a concern that we've been a bit too caught up on two things. One, the kind of business of VR and how many units it's selling. And two, the its role within the games industry. And actually, maybe its best life exists outside of the games industry, which is what you've been saying all along. But specifically... Yay! I know, I know. And I know this would be great if it just orbited around to simply Pip was right. Um, but... <laughs> 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 it does but actually like so the thing that this has made me think about recently a lot recently is that um a lot of the conversations i've had with people working in this form of vr have revolved around the fact that um vr requires a, a sort of a defter or more curatorial or more directorial approach than an engi- a purely engineering focused approach to software development provides. And that takes loads of different forms. I would describe like the kind of 
um, very cynical business of games, particularly when it comes to like mobile games and things as an engineering approach, right? Like it's like how much money can we engineer out of these people with the right development systems? Similarly, um, games tend to tend to emerge from a kind of engineering problem and then get narrative overlaid on them. Whereas VR tend, seems to be benefiting from a approach that's far more similar to or, like sort of auteur theory or, or filmmaking as it applies to filmmaking. And that's super interesting because it's basically antithetical to how games are made. And I kind of wonder if a lot of the defining ideas of what ends up making VR work as a medium uh, will be completely antithetical to games, which has a really complicated relationship with most of the fact that the early adopters of VR are gamers. How that works out, I do not know. But actually, one thing that's really heartening is seeing, like, if you look at the YouTube comments on a video of something like Old Friend or any of Tyler Hood's other stuff, you see people going like, I just picked this up from the the Vive on, on Steam for my Vive, uh, and... Like I've never seen anything like this and it kind of like blew, blew me away, which is really cool because it means that VR is also acting as a bridge between games and other form of media, which honestly, maybe I'm ready to say this, might be just better at telling stories and have more interesting methodologies to bring to bear. Not that games can't tell stories, but the AAA big investment games tend to not because of the direction the capital forces them in. And VR is currently pushing in the other direction and maybe that's really interesting for the moment and maybe that'll change. But yeah basically i think vr is probably fine but its home isn't gdc anymore that would be my mm. answer to this sorry that was a complete rant apart from to say that pip was right basically <laughs> pip was right everybody well, i'm wondering given that you mentioned auteurs and auteur theory like whether you think smaller studios are at an advantage because totally, of that yeah. sort of because some of the some of the, the gaming projects that have done things well or have at least had a better understanding of what GD uh, of what uh, VR is good at are people like um, the Northways and Fantastic Contraption, right? It's it's this sense of you know I had a, an interesting conversation with Colin Northway about the fact that you know he was just like well you know we we sort of wanted this thing where you could like reach out and get a you know, a thing, uh, a, like a stick from this, from a basket that was, you know, moving around you, following you around the space, you know, and you could just reach out and get this thing and add it to your, to your structure, you know, and build from that. And, you know, a thing that sort of made sense to them in the moment was to have it as a cat that was like, you know, with a little basket on it that had these things in that would follow you round. And, you know, things like that were really interesting. And this experiments of scale and this experiments of, you know, and it's, I, I think it's like individual people, like Isaac Cohen's work is really sort of interesting in terms of the scales that it plays with. Um, and yeah, like, off the back of you saying about that, maybe the fact that they are small teams or single people are very important in a way that I hadn't necessarily, not that I hadn't thought of it before, but yeah. the actual smallness seems to be a factor in being able to figure out an experience, right? I suspect it will raise a lot of very modern problems. Like it will, the the best methodologies and expertise and design innovations will probably come from small studios but the money is going to come from big companies and so you're going to get small trad kind of indie expertise applied to the problems of solving a star wars virtual reality issue and that's really interesting because we don't have loads of precedent for that like how you know how that ends up getting negotiated and what that ends up resulting in is a big question mark and that's really cool but at the same time 
we don't like we're not used to thinking of it being a good thing for indie expertise that there's a load of uh capital helping them make mm. you know f- big uh, experiences for big ip or um helping them make products that are essentially adverts for the vr wing of a different company that's seeking investment from another source and then maybe you know what i mean like the whole thing is in, inextricably tied up in in big business it, it will not be a truly indie kind of exercise mm. but but some of those investments might come from government or healthcare as yeah. well so in terms of you know therapeutic um or um training related stuff or you know disaster relief or emergency like um, yeah responding uh, things like that are kind of of interest as well so that that's another source of potential funding that could make use of those pockets of experience and to sort of to maybe circle back to what marsh was asking with the question i mean i do i am delighted that this stuff seems to have resulted in people who do interesting things having development kits, right? Or, you know, various hardware in their sort of arsenal of stuff that they play with and think about to maybe try and push those things forwards or to incorporate elements of them or figure out what works and talk to other people about Mm. what works and what doesn't, right? Yeah. I think in terms of Marsh's question, what needs to be done to save VR games? Honestly, I think maybe it's like actually just not like maybe just to tie a bow on that. Like it's almost like don't think about games as the exclusive providence of it quite so much. Like there's so much to this subject. It's one of the reasons that I'm writing a really long article about it, but like, you know, there's, um, there's so much to this subject, but it means, I think detaching your view solely from like, I think maybe where all of our heads were at when VR was announced and maybe starting to think about it as a entirely different medium. It's not a home in that environment and kind of needs its own place to kind of gestate for a bit before it emerges, but actually it doesn't really need anything other than what it has at the moment. It's just that being judged against the standards of video games as they exist right now isn't kind of the right approach to VR, really, I suspect. Our next question comes from Steve, who writes, Dearest Crowbards, someone must have asked this, but just in case, and it is seasonally appropriate, what is your favourite video game Easter egg? There, I said it. Thanks for an amazing pod. It's always a highlight of my week. You're the best. Happy Easter, Steve. Happy Easter, Steve. I think I enjoyed the concept of Easter eggs the most back before I knew what they were mm. when it was a wild and unpredictable thing. And I remember, I think it was blood. Like you could, on a certain level, if you just went out on a certain ledge, uh, you could sort of skirt the whole building and then come into a secret room with like, I don't know, some special power up and some weapons and stuff. But the important thing for me was it popped up a message on the screen saying, you shouldn't be able to get here. <laughs> it wasn't like well done for getting here or yeah you found the secret it was just like we we don't think this should be possible <laughs> Aww. yeah i think i missed that moment of like actual discovery like before they felt so part of the marketing i guess or part of 
you know, a set of, well, we know that you know that we know that you want these things. So I guess we'll come up with some. They, I, I like the ones that feel more like you've actually stumbled upon a thing that was fun for them to create rather than a thing that was created because Easter eggs are now expected, I guess. Mm. I was like the Halo game, maybe that's a bit too console focused, but like I did really enjoy the original Halo games for the amount of kind of like daft little um, secrets and Easter eggs hidden around their levels. Um, Too many specific examples, but like lots of good hidden voice files that would play very rarely or little puzzles hidden away in the environment that would take years to solve. That's the kind of thing that I enjoy. Like I like hidden, both hidden jokes, but also hidden story stuff. I think maybe I want both of those things from a good Easter egg. Also chocolate. Because I just really liked stuff that I found totally by accident in um, Ocarina of Time and stuff like that weird secret cave that has a cow in it. Um, That was just kind of fun and nice to find. It was just this really weird, what? (laughs) Like, how did this happen? Mm. Um, Whereas, yeah, the things that are like, here are the 10 Easter eggs of this thing. It's just... yeah, and I don't know. The internet ruined these uh, tracks, basically. Is but what it we're also it feels a little bit like that standardization thing of um, of a delightful experience. You know, not everyone used to do encores, but now an encore is now a, a yeah a, a fact of each musical performance. Like if you don't do one, you've somehow let people down, or it's not. I would argue the same is cool. The same is true for the. Marvel post credit sequence, mm. uh, which has gone from being the kind of cinematic equivalent of an encore to being a kind of mandatory exercise that has now entered its kind of like postmodern phase where they don't know what they're doing anymore. <laughs> and so it's just jokes. Yeah. So I just, I think maybe I would like, uh, you know, I still find things that I like every now and again, but I'm, I'm interested in maybe at some point we'll come back around and, and Easter eggs will kind of get integrated into the game in that expected way as like a full, you know, like a, a it becomes so much part of the establishment that there's another way that people figure out to to make a delightful mm. oddity. Yeah. The next question comes from Robert, who asks, Hi, Straight and Sandbars. What game environments will be used for the machinima biography of your lives? Speaking personally... Everybody's gone to the Rapture Dirt Rally. And the reason I thought of this question, TT Isle of Man, and I guess until we get a game set in the Welsh Valleys, Doom 2. Uh, that's from Rob. Hmm. Um, Dishonored is definitely one of mine. <laughs> Dunwall's very Liverpool. There's a lot of in the middle of Harbourside Liverpool that's got a bit of the whole Red Brit Dishonored mm. Dunwall kind of thing to it. Um, I feel any, any gameplay from a Far Cry game can be transposed onto Bath and the canal. <laughs> you don't mean that. I'll, I'll just like, <laughs> give me a speedboat <laughs> on that canal. I'll jet away. But hang on. That's not, that's not your life. That's not a machinima of your life. <laughs> you haven't know, done that isn't yet. It, isn't it? Haven't close you? Close enough. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You want a, you want a speedboat jet away from the future publishing offices, which are like right by the river. <laughs> Yeah, I remember there, there was a time when I used to run to to work, like from Twerton to Bath, and I would arrive just like drenched in sweat. I remember and, these days. Yeah, it was horrific. 
Because you don't run away from work. Like, <laughs> I could have, but you, I wanted to keep my job. <laughs> no, I mean in the evenings. I'm sure that's the point when you're... Because then you're running towards your home shower, right? Yeah, but then that, that's uphill rather than downhill. Which is a more terrifying prospect. Uh, I see. <laughs> um, Pip, what... A video game environment would be used for mission and review your life and why is animal crossing <laughs> well so in a very real kind of answer if we're looking for realistic scenery i guess it's it's this is the point that i think i made when i was reviewing everybody's gone to the rapture because there are so few games that actually take an interest in the uh variations or the specificities of of England as opposed to America or, you know, other select places. Um, and so I, I kind of thought, oh, maybe everybody's got to the rapture, but that's because that is the only faithful representation of a sort of vaguely rural English place that I've seen. And it would, it, you know, it, it isn't, but yeah. Um, I think, yeah, I think my list, I think everyone says this has to kind of include everyone's gone to the rapture just for the <laughs> pub. Well, not the pub, it's more the actual, um, you know, the cow parsley and things like that and the rural lanes and the fact that it's got the English version of fire hydrants, right, rather than <laughs> mm. American ones. And, you know, it's it, there is a very peculiarly Englishness to it, but it's, I guess, maybe also fail better type games because they have a sort of very English understanding in some ways of particular pockets of awkwardness or mm. yeah, but obviously that doesn't help with the machinima kind of side of things but there's there's a sense to them that feels recognizably of the worlds that I grew up in right mm. you know um, but to be honest, until somebody makes a very, very faithful video game of an Agatha Christie, like Marple, then I'm stumped. Yeah. I've got nothing. <laughs> I think mine would be, to follow the line of the question, Dishonored, Everyone's Gone to the Rapture, Baldur's Gate, GTA London, and Regency Solitaire. <laughs> <laughs> That which literally mentions Bath. Well, like yeah. Bath is a, a location in that. So, yeah, I don't, yeah, mm, mm. I've done a very good job of saying why I don't have the answer to a lot of these questions. <laughs> <laughs> Although if you no. want a documentary of my life, it's me walking over a pitfall seed in, um, in Animal Crossing, mm. <laughs> New Leaf. Yeah. Just flailing around. <laughs> Oh, oh, no, 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 penultimate question. I (laughs) fucked that up. Comes from Chris. You? No. There is more than one of us. Interesting. This Chris, a particular different Chris, says, hey, hey, hello. So, obviously, good sound design can make a huge difference in the atmosphere of a game, and specific noises can bury themselves deeply into your brain. That rhymes. I don't know if he intended that. What's your favorite game sound effect? The one that had the biggest effect in the moment, or the one that stuck with you the most clearly? Love the podcast. Keep up the good work. See. Uh, I feel like Action Quake 2 had uh, everything that defines me as a gamer. (laughs) (laughs) Windows. Yep. Smashing them. Throwing knives. Throwing knives. Slippers. (laughs) 
clearly an uh, integral part of my gaming identity. <laughs> that doesn't answer the question of sound effects. Headshot noise. Right. That's where I was getting to. <laughs> I that. If you shot someone in the head, it made a really good noise. And that is the headshot noise. They also used in like Counter-Strike eventually. But I think Action Quick 2 predated it. I think for me, it's the noise that any given like button or thing terminal like or device makes in Half-Life when it doesn't want you to use it. <laughs> um, it's that wank Fair noise. Right. And I don't mean to say the word wank, but it is sort of like a highly digitized version of the word wank. <laughs> um, that sound is my most enduring video game sound effect. How do you feel about Family Fortunes' noise? It's just two wanks. Okay. <laughs> cool. One wank too many. <laughs> I think, for me, it's a sound that I don't know whether it exists or whether I've made it up in my head or whether it comes from a song instead, but hear me out, because I, I might have <laughs> It's just retro- a noise, Pip has imagined. So I've retroactively applied it to Day of the Tentacle <laughs> when Evil Tentacle is, like, just doing things and going about its business. I imagine a kind of joyful slurping noise, like, that would relate to movement of an evil tentacle. But it might also be from... The Magnetic Field song, The Luckiest Guy on the Lower East Side, <laughs> which also has a sort of joyful slurpingness to it, just sort of bouncing through this <laughs> kind of song. But also, it might be from neither of them, and I might have just imagined it as what I would like to do if I were an evil tentacle <laughs> slurping my way through a nice town. <laughs> so I don't know if that's real, and I don't know if that's allowed to be an answer to this question (laughs) it's close enough (laughs) but that's what i'm sticking with (laughs) good our final question comes from andrew who writes hi was the spite horn a reference to last episode Hmm. the inaugural entry of the grudge book Thanks to the great pod, Andrew. If people didn't listen to that last episode, this means it was your decision to take up the French horn in order to punish your parents for making you learn a musical instrument. The first (laughs) instance of the grudge book. No, it was not. I didn't think it would be. (laughs) Because I was at least in secondary school by that point in time. And quite frankly, there was probably a good library worth of grudges (laughs) previous to that. I think the first one that I remember, possibly was like when I was a kid, uh, like a little kid, and I'd walked, like I was walking along across the classroom and suddenly my teacher just grabbed me by the arm and hauled another little girl out of her chair and was like, okay, well, which one of you threw that that pencil across the room? And I was like, well, I don't, what? Uh, you know, and I had no idea what she was talking about. And it had like, it genuinely hurt because this was like, you know, back in the day and people still wrenched children along by the arm. And, um, and she made both of us stand in the corner until one of us confessed. <laughs> and I was so baffled by it. And I was like, but I, she made it so clear that neither of us was getting out of there until we confessed. So I, in the end, I was just like, it, fine, it was me. 
And the other girl, Lisa, when yeah, <laughs> I was, I was waiting to discover who was actually in the grudge book from this scenario. There we go. Lisa. I know her last name. The uh, audience does not need to. Um, <laughs> and she got to go and just play outside for the rest of the you <laughs> know, break you? time and stuff. I think I was about six, <laughs> but. Uh, you know, it was just that feeling of the absolute injustice of it because I just thought, well, you know, I, clearly we're both just going to stand here until, you know, and I I think I hadn't worked out that life doesn't reward you for, you know, not being a shit. There is a reason <laughs> so. why, like, the criminal justice system does not work on that logic. <laughs> like, <laughs> you pick two people and whoever admits first must have done it and then the other one goes free. But it was just, it was so baffling to me and it's always just been a sad thing to remember yeah. and it's, I really hate that that's the memory of school that really stands out for me is like this feeling of just you know, being wrenched across the room in a really embarrassing way and forced to stand in a corner in full view of my classmates until I admitted to something I didn't do, mm, yeah. you know. And it's just like, it was just that excruciating awfulness. And so I remember that teacher's name. I remember the girl who threw the pencil. <laughs> I remember all of those things. It won't do me any good. <laughs> Nonetheless, the cornerstone, do you think those are the founding entries of the Book of Grudges? I think that there are other things that probably came before <laughs> that but they are sufficiently jumbled in terms mm. of i'm not sure right mm. so you know times when you know a parent has been angry over a thing that actually wasn't your fault right you yeah, know things sure. like that so but they're so non-specific that's that's the first one that i can pin down probably in terms of time mm. but it's also just quite a sad memory so it's like it's not a great one to end the podcast on. The spite horn's great, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. Well, I took less. up an expensive, loud musical instrument just to spite people, <laughs> <laughs> and learned nothing. Even so, it is the uh, grudge entry that we have to end the podcast on. I tell you what, though, to make it slightly less bitter. Um, did you know that I would often forget that I had had a music lesson because I'd been so bad at the music lesson, um, and would, uh, then thus leave my French horn on the bus. But because it's such an expensive instrument, my mother would then be like, where's your French horn? As soon as I came through the door, and I'd be like, oh, I left it on the bus. And she would get in the car and drive and flag the bus down and park directly in front (laughs) of the bus until she could get my French horn back. This is like the GTA version of getting (laughs) the French horn back. So this is, but also that Where are you at now, House of Brothers? That was obviously massively embarrassing to me. So I really, to this day, do not know who won that grudge match. Your mum always wins, but this is the fact of life. So yeah, so that's a nicer ending. That's that's the yeah, that's the full entry of the spite horn in the, in the book. But that is all the spite horn we have time for mm. for this week. I'm afraid. If you'd like to send us a spite horn for a future spite horn of the spite horn, you can email us at questions at creatingcrowbar dot com. You can also send questions about video games if you wish. If you'd like to tweet us, you can tweet us at creatingcrowbar. You can also find us on YouTube, youtube.com forward slash create and crowbar. And as ever, this podcast and its spin-offs is supported by our Patreon backers, uh, for whom we are very grateful. Um, and you can find out more about our Patreon and how we pay for things at patreon.com forward slash create and crowbar. If you would like to follow us on Twitter as individuals, you can find Tom Francis 
at Spentzach, P-E-N-T-A-D-A-C-T. And Philippa War. Uh, P-H-I-L-I-P-P-A-W-A-R. And I'm also at C Thurston, that's C-T-H-U-R-S-T-E-N. Thanks for everybody. This is a I made a little squeaky sound and made myself giggle. <laughs> That's Bye. All that happened. <laughs>